Hello, and welcome to the Lavender Menace podcast. My name is Sunny. I'm your co-host, and I'm still reeling over the information we received about TS10. Midnight's? Mm -hmm. Who is screaming? Yeah, we're all screaming. Hello, my name is Renaissance, other co-host of the podcast here, the Lavender Menace, and I'm also stuck at the restaurant where Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift told us Mm -hmm. that TS10 was coming out. And I'm referencing that song for as long as it remains my number one Taylor song because I'm yeah. so anxious and nervous about we are how afraid this, about yeah. how we're afraid for our ranking. This album is gonna affect our current discography analysis yeah. and conception of our favorites and shit. Like because, God. like, with the in, especially since. Okay, we're just jumping right into the hot take, I guess. No no official hot take for today's episode, guys. We're just going to be talking about Taylor AMAs. Swift VMAs. Yeah. AM- no, new, VMAs. News, VMAs. Yeah. Like news, information, news, news. all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. we're, we're doing we're doing business talk today. Right. We're catching up on this cuz it's just too it's too relevant to not be talking about this, so we just yeah. have to. Um, and it's too overwhelming for my body to not talk like about we have this. to talk about it or else I will explode. It literally. So my anxieties about TS10 is that because all of the songs are written uh, like from different points of her life, yeah, it's like this could recontextualize my understanding of so many other yeah. Taylor yeah. songs, eras, albums, like. There could be a song written in the time that she's either making 1989 or the 1989 era specifically, because as we all know, I'm a 1989 girl, that like, I I feel like I know 1989 so well and mm-hmm. that time so well that if, if like Taylor Swift has news that could lead to the downfall of the US government in this album, huh. it's yeah. like, like I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I mean, it is pretty shocking uh (laughs) like she got our asses good like yeah she did the thing is is that we were during the day of the vmas we were all like she's not even gonna show up like she's not even gonna be there like y'all are crazy for thinking that and then this shit happens like whatever not only was she there but she was there capital t yeah like she subverts so many expectations, you know? She really did. Mm-hmm. Because when she walked in, everyone was like, oh, Rep TV. But actually, no, this is referencing her her first VMA's experience, the dress that she was wearing there. Oh, but no, actually, yeah. it looks like the in 1989 Victoria's Secret show. Like, people were just <laughs> listing off all the different things yeah. she could possibly be referencing in just her fucking fit. So that when she won the awards and then announced Midnight's Taylor Swift 10th studio album we mm-hmm. we, lo- we we all collectively lost our shit yeah. and the just... night was already a win by her leaving her house and no, being literally. photographed I was Not dead like... as fuck at one news source being like this is the fourth public appearance we've seen of Taylor Swift this year four public appearances <laughs> She is not seen. She is only seen when she wants to be. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the, like that's really impressive. Well. I know. Like in the age of like 
cell phone cam like everyone is being filmed constantly like not mm -hmm. to be like big brother scary but like mm -hmm. literally surveillance is real taylor swift like possibly the most visible person recognizable person ever is literally not to be seen mm -hmm. except when like she wants to be or you know she calls them herself mm -hmm. it's like whoa <laughs> mm -hmm. like how do you do that that is a lot of power it's but... her private jet sleigh yeah, it's her CO2 emissions. Like, it makes her invisible. <laughs> yeah. The CO2 emissions surround her and make her invisible. <laughs> That's what J.K. Rowling didn't include in the Harry Potter series. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The invisibility yeah. cloak, it's made yeah. out of CO2 emissions. No, exactly. What songs do you think are, are going to be the first to be chopped of the faves in order simply to make room for new songs? Like, how, how much are you willing to wager before we even get the album i honestly don't even remember what my ranking was of like my top 10 from when we recorded with the archers like yeah i don't even remember i remember that my number one was the last great american dynasty which is just like it's always going to be the same because as soon as those lines open up i'm like i'm seated like i'm called <laughs> for so that's always mm -hmm. gonna be my number one and obviously i think my number two was like false god or something because dude i love that song but I don't know. I think the songs that might be removed or cut off from this top 10 situation. Uh, maybe like the last time from Red TV featuring mm -hmm. Gary What's-His-Face is going to get chopped because I've been listening to it less and less. And I've been listening to other Red songs more and more recently. Like I've been obsessed. Mm -hmm. with, I mean, also been listening to a lot of Fearless TV. Like, Forever and Always is always stuck in my head so now. So good. So and good. And after hearing the Archers bearding episode about, like, every pronoun was a bait and switch, that episode they talk about Forever and Always, and I was like, wait, and it totally shifted the way that I, like, because <laughs> I knew of the song, but I didn't really regularly listen to it. I just knew of it because... Of yeah. the cultural consciousness around her music, particularly in that era. So when I now like revisited it and like listened to the full song, Taylor's version, I'm just like, wow, she put fucking crack in this. But I've just been listening to a lot of I Bet You Think About Me, a lot of mm -hmm. like I Knew You Were Trouble, Once Upon a Time, mm -hmm. like just yeah. shit like that, right? So I don't even think like I'm just so mentally at a different place than I was when the when we recorded <laughs> that episode like what three yeah. to six months ago uh, about our favorite Taylor Swift songs of all time that I'm just like I don't even I don't even know what would be bumped down in my ranking because I don't even know what my ranking is really right now because yeah. it's obviously we know it's always shifting but the things that stand out in my mind is like songs I love, love, and will forever love, love. It's like, because I already know that those are the songs that I love, love, and will forever love, mm -hmm. I can't imagine them being bumped out, you know? And that is the contemplation that I'm thinking of right now, right. of less of, like, specific songs, but it's like, to me, in my mind, when I made that list, I'm like, well, these are on lock, you know? Like, I, yeah, I can't yeah. bring myself to rank any of these songs below 10. Maybe I won't change my top 10, but even expand it to top 15. But then even that's only adding five extra spaces off of a 13 track album. And mm -hmm. because like TS10 is technically coming out October 21st of 2022, the songs mm -hmm. are from so many different years. I'm like, does this count 
as a song from the era in which it was written? Or does it count as a song in this new version of Taylor that we're seeing right now? So it's like, if I sprinkle in Midnight songs, do I keep my albums balanced? Because if I'm being honest, I could pull my top 10 just from Folklore and Evermore, but I try mm -hmm, and give mm -hmm. all of the girls some love. So it's like, is Midnight's going to tip the balance in this regard? Or mm -hmm. I, I take I'm taking my Taylor economy very seriously. Like, economy just don't <laughs> the have Dow shit economy, the to stock market of our favorite Taylor Swift songs. I'm doing mental chess right now, being like, listen, if I want at least yeah. three midnight songs, yeah, on my top ten, which is probably what's going to happen, like at least three out of thirteen, that means that like. So, some songs that I can't even think of right now are either going to be bumped or re like reordered. Like I can't imagine right where you think about me being below the second or third spot, but like that is an inevitability. Like that, like right where you left Yeah, but like that's a possibility. I can't even try and predict what I think a lyric or a song will sound like that will strike me so personally, but I know it exists and I know that it will be on that album, but I can't even begin to imagine what that sounds like. And that, mm. that, that tension that I'm feeling from literally last night until October 21st is like making me buzz. The Gaylers have also been losing their shit, our shit, about <laughs> yeah. the post that she made explaining the logic behind Midnight's and because it sounds gay as hell, <laughs> gay, closeted, dyke, gay, lesbian, gay, homosexual. <laughs> yeah, she's she's up pacing, fighting demons, and the demons in are her just... closet, in her yeah, cages, yeah, yeah. in her self-made cages, and pray that we aren't right this minute about to make some fateful life-altering mistake. It's giving moments right before you come out when you think, I could just not do this, but then you actually say it, which even though I regret kind of coming out and like the way that it's like portrayed on media of like having, mm -hmm, where you mm -hmm. like pull someone aside and sit them down mm -hmm. and it's like, yeah. I have something to tell you kind of thing. I don't think that people should have to do that. At the same time, as someone who has done that, when I was reading Taylor's little caption for Midnight's or, or post that she did explaining the album or the concept for the album. It felt so similar, especially about like the feeling right before you're about to make some like life altering mistake. Feels so much like the precipice of coming out. Like when you're already, you're sitting down face to face with the person that you're gonna come out with. And you know that like you've, you've already come this far. So it's like, you might as well come out. But then there's still that little voice in your head that's like, I, I could not say it. Like, I could just not mm -hmm. do it because coming out is just one of those things that, like, you can't take back. Like, you can't undo. You know, you just can't kidding. unsay anything, you know, that whole cheesy-ass toothpaste metaphor that we all got pushed down our throats in, like, elementary school or whatever. Yeah. But, like, you can't cover your tracks in that way of, like, coming out TM, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like this album is that, but at the same time, I like I really feel like this is another attempt 
in the, in the way that Lover was supposed to be her coming out album, I feel yeah. like Midnight is really bringing her back to that place of the preparation for a coming out. But at this point in her career, I'm also nervous that it's going to just strengthen Gaylers and being like, this is gay as hell. Like she is out gay, not heterosexual, but she's not going to like say it to again, like the people who she doesn't want to know. I don't know if Midnight is going to be the official corporate rainbow coming out thing because she still doesn't want to come out to the people who are inevitably going to be incredibly homophobic to her and incredibly invasive about her personal and sexual life. But at the same time, I really, really want her to come out so that I can know that I'm right in my heart and soul, which is a selfish reason, but ultimately that's what it comes down to. I think it's funny that people are like, Midnight is going to be her fourth failed coming out. Because, <laughs> because like, yeah, it was really Reputation, mm -hmm. Lover, Folklore, Evermore, which are all albums that just fucking scream, I am gay. And then now with this album, even the album cover and like, of course, her description for it is already so gay. It's also fun to see how Gaylorism as like an ideology <laughs> of belief. A trap. <laughs> Bitches about to walk into their poli sci class being like, today's lesson is on Gaylorism. The political implications of Taylor Swift gay allegations. Like, Literally. There are many. But anyways, the thing is, most likely, I think that's what Midnight is going to be, is going to be her reinforcing what we know to be true, is that she has already indicated to us that she's queer. And these are just going to be more indicators that she is queer based off of mm -hmm. what we know about her life, what she chooses to let us know about her life and her own writing. So, you know, I think that it doesn't really matter to me because I also think that the feeling of being like, guys, we're right and rubbing it in people's faces of like, oh, Taylor mm -hmm. is actually gay. We've known all along. is not going to be as satisfying as just analyzing all of her lyrics and every fucking step and move that she makes. Like, I think it's because the thing is, is that fandom is inherently just so much about like delusion like loving a, yeah. a celebrity or a musician is so mm -hmm. much about what you think you know about their life so yeah the hetlers or even just like your average or even your you know just normal not normal but like yeah swifties <laughs> are normal but like the average yeah. swifty right yeah. Some Swifties just don't know shit about this Gaylor shit and probably don't give a fuck and just presume like, okay, well, Taylor and the media say that she's been with Joe for five years. So they've been together for five years. Okay, whatever. And when they see the video of <laughs> Taylor and Joe fucking sprinting out that VMA <laughs> after party to the car, they're probably mm -hmm. just like, oh, they're so cute. They're running off together. Or like, oh, this is so getaway car coded. But for uh, for Gaylers, like there's, that's just mm -hmm. one perspective to look at it based off of what you know, the limitations of what you know about her life. And, you know, but for us, because we, we are aware of this Joe-Taylor relationship obviously but we think there's something greater going on there or there's something there's something you know or like we yeah. think that 
that's not the limitation of her sexuality and not the defining element of her sexuality. When we see them running to the car together, we don't think like, oh, wow, how cute. They're such a cute couple. You know what I mean? Like, it's so much about what you know or think or what you think you know about a public figure that allows you to interpret their actions any given way. Even and especially when Taylor says, I have a boyfriend. He is Joe Alwood. He has helped me write these songs. When she says that, you could take that at face value and be like, okay, so true. But also, she's never said, I am straight. And we've never had to be like, well, she's lying. But if she says, I am queer, I am gay, I am whatever label then people can also be like, well, you're lying, you know, like, or would just be like, that doesn't track. So, but for, uh, but that is entirely based off of who you are and what you know about who Taylor is. Like, it's so dependent on that. So any definitive statement that she makes about herself or her relationships it's, I think as she gets older and as her career progresses, it's just continually going to be more and more like ephemeral, more and more unable to totally pin down. As we see in her lack of public appearances, like during her like red era, when she moved to New York, she was walking around getting papped at the grocery store. Now mm-hmm. she cannot step outside on the street without 20 million people jumping her ass. Like, the thing she can is, barely speak at the VMAs last night. No. She's at the mic because... Yeah, everyone was it, cheering so fucking loud. Which yeah. is, like, fair. Like, we're all excited. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're that huge of a star... Like, even though in, like, 2013, she was a huge star, you know? Yeah. But now, she, she is a star it's of a epic level. proportions. So, yeah. she can't be, like, a normal person anymore. So, we can't expect her to interact with the world and then yeah much less come out normally in a straightforward way i mean i don't i i I don't mean this in like i i i don't think that her dropping midnight it would be coming out normally per se (laughs) i think also it's not i mean i do think that it would be satisfying to be like wow i knew that you were gay or i thought that you were gay and then you are and that's really satisfying to see that Mm -hmm. i could correctly recognize something in myself and someone that I love so much in a delusional way of course it's complete projection yeah, yeah, yeah. but still, that's how I feel <laughs> that would bring me a certain form of satisfaction but I also think that I want Taylor to come out because in the past four albums of her hashtag failed coming out plus like the vault tracks that we've been getting that have some, you know, gay content in them as well. There's still tension with her and coming out and wanting to come out or not so. And I think that if it would relieve these cages and these demons that she's <laughs> up at midnight well, I fighting. Think that that's what she's talking about. Like the album is going to be about her, like like so many of her previous albums, like, it is going to be about that. It's not going to be and, about- and I think- leaving the cage it's about being in it you know and that's what she's written about i think that that is what the song content is about obviously i think the releasing of these songs is the catharsis of having beaten the demons like like Mm. the content of the songs is going to be about the pacing and the midnights and probably like being horny at midnight as well because yeah yeah, yeah. we've seen her as well like (laughs) 
Like, I think it's, it's going to show the different kinds of midnights. I don't think it's all going to be stress and anxiety and depression, even though, of course, that's what all the memes are going to be about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. going to be talking about anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... The mental... The, this looks like a Lexapro ad type shit. Yeah, <laughs> the exactly. The two out of three people suffer from mental illness. <laughs> the edits like, people have been be... making based off of this shit. The, the Vampire See, Weekend is... cover, album cover... Yeah. This is why she doesn't tell us shit. This is why we only see her four times a year. Because you guys don't know how to fucking act. Like, that's the other thing. She's so easy to make fun of because the stuff that we do have from her is so silly already. And it's so easy to... Again, it's just so easy to make fun of. Is is she easy to make fun of or is she just a white millennial woman? Like, she's just a white millennial. And that's why she is so funny because, like... White millennial women are just so fucking hilarious. Especially, like, when you think about it when she's fucking Taylor Swift. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's very endearing, you know? Like, even yeah. when she opens up her performances or does her, you know, in-between singing songs being like, you know, I think it's really cool how gay people are, are cool and now let's <laughs> play delicate. Like, you know? I mean, like, she she does that shit. And I think the act of performing is obviously cathartic for her. The act of releasing music and writing music is obviously always going to be a form of catharsis as all Mm -hmm. pieces of art are. Like, it's an expression of your own emotions that become actualized. The thing is, is that this album is going to be so fucking interesting to see how she presents it because the Mm -hmm. thing with evermore is that she has avoided having to present it in any way like she hasn't had to really address it and she just doesn't you know like that's why the silence is loud on evermore her silence Nothing when ivy was in the dickinson sex scene of course which that silence was quite loud (laughs) another song was in another you can hear a hairpin drop Quite literally. But the thing is that as much as I want Evermore long pond sessions, if I have to hear another bullshit William Bowery fucking story <laughs> about how he wrote Cowboy Like Me or some shit like that, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. That's what I'm saying. So, exactly. That's the reason why she's not talking about Evermore, the gay younger sister. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the black sheep because if she goes into why she wrote these songs, where she's coming from in writing this shit, you already... like. There's no plausible deniability there in her explanations mm-hmm. beyond the song itself. And that is what Gaylorism is so slay about. It's looking at every way you can interpret a song. Like, I, the, with the bearding pronouns episode on the archers, it made me, it fascinated mm-hmm. me so much because she alternates between the pronouns of he and him and you so often yeah. in her songs that if you think of he, him as a different person from you, yours... That totally changes the way you can listen to any of her songs. And so yeah. much of her music is so ambiguous. It's a blank space, baby, I'll write your name. Like, that could mean so many different things. But because mm-hmm. of how she's presented it and how it's been presented in the media and how people have consumed it at large, everyone understands it to be just like, oh, she's playing with this idea of her as the crazy ex-girlfriend and all these men she's, like, ran through with, essentially, and the way that... <laughs> but 
really, if you look at what she's saying in her lyrics, you could think of it in so many different ways. I mean, same for, you know, like, ours, mine, the way I loved you, like, you know, all of her songs, going back to Mm -hmm. whatever, you can think of all of them in such different ways that when you open your fucking third eye to the gay, to the (laughs) gay-isms of it all, is when her songs no longer sound like the poppy bops, empty lyrics that they that a lot of people think of them to be, but rather yeah. to be something that is a little bit more profound. Like we're all bored, we're all so bored of everything. Like when you open the song like that and you just hear it, it's like okay, well this is your average pop song about like the girls going on a night out. But mm-hmm. switch sides like a record player, like you know, like like once you think of the more specific Mascara things, like all this shit, let's let's grant her the intellectualism and recognize and acknowledge her and her work to be the genius that it is and that she she is, mm-hmm. and think of her songs as multifaceted and able to be interpreted in any particular way as a reflection upon herself as an individual and like how we think of her music like that's what is so compelling narratively about Taylor Swift being this pop star that everyone everyone who has eyeballs thinks is gay you know like and dealing with the inherent closeting that comes with being someone that famous who early on in her career was never like, I am a gay artist and everyone should interpret me as a gay artist. The way that a yeah. lot of because other Because then artists... her music would have sucked. <laughs> her music would have been bad. <laughs> Please? Like, there's like Taylor Swift, the pop cultural icon, removed as a human being. There's the Taylor Swift LLC, the name, the image that we think of, the person that we... that is the like popular portrayal of her regardless of what like Gaylers, your average Swifty, Hetlers, whatever like we all know who quote-unquote Taylor Swift is like as an icon and then there is Taylor Swift the one individual human person who's trying to navigate this wild life that millions of people are seeing her try and navigate and then there's also Taylor Swift like the literary figure and the writer and someone who's just trying to make art that maybe in a smaller scale or if she really was an indie artist could be dealt with in a really intimate way between her and her audience. But because basically the entire world is her listenership, she really has to, uh, she can't have such vulnerable and intimate confessions like explicitly or directly to the public because of how many people are going to engage with that and become incredibly invasive in her life and her privacy. And we obviously see that her safety is such a huge concern for not only her, but so many people in her family and in her team above anything else, above her career, that obviously her being this famous and also being a woman already puts her in so much danger that we see really explored in Miss Americana in a way that I don't think that we had seen before. And I could tell that like, even if she's out to like, let's say her team or her parents or whatever, even maybe the well-meaning people on her team is like, Taylor, maybe being this fucking famous and being gay 
with these people who already don't like you for X, Y, and Z reason may not be the smartest safety choice. But then also it's like her coming out as at this point in her career, even later in her career, because I don't think she'll ever stop being famous and relevant, would be so huge to be like, you can have an out gay woman songwriter and her music not be ass because she has been writing about girls. You know, I think that that would be really influential for a lot of the music industry since so many ex-artists and ex-pop stars or people that have been spit out by the Hollywood industry for being gay or not wanting to remain closeted or not participating in the bearding situation. And I can't remember the one artist, which I feel so bad, who like spoke about her experience with bearding and being closeted. God, I can't remember. They reference her all the time in The Arches. But part of me is like, Taylor should come out because Tolerate It is such a tragic song. And as I feel like the girl in Tolerate It deserves love for coming out. I want her to come out because I think it would be so influential for the music industry and for pop culture in general. I want her to come out because I think it would be fun. But also at the same time, when I think of Taylor Swift's like humanity, you know, or what that would actually entail, obviously I understand all the reasons why she hasn't or wouldn't or why Midnight's isn't going to be that album or why she's going to keep doing kind of communication that she has going now of the albums being very gay, but people who get it, get it, and the people who don't, don't kind of situation. In my darkest nights, I remind myself that I have to stay alive for Taylor Swift's tell-all memoir. And if that is the moment that I find out all of the truth, huh. then it yeah. is what it is. But I just think that like for Midnight's at least and waiting for Midnight's, I hope that it is as cathartic as she wants it to be and hopes it to be and I don't think that she'd release it if it wasn't because at this point in the process usually from the artist perspective like everything has been done is done it's just waiting for it to be released you know who knows what other projects music videos I mean, for this she already has in the can but like what could come after this like how do you still have demons after releasing this album mm. and if this isn't her coming out or this is her still into this era after the album comes out, which is about the demons. If there are still demons after this, what does that say about her relationship to her own sexuality? Whether or not she, if she's out to herself and she finds peace with herself in that way and she's very comfortable with what she's got going on, that's perfectly great, fine, hashtag slay. But if there's still that tension there, what does that say about this album or her relationship with coming out i think that the redemption arc that we've seen her go on during and after reputation in which her name has essentially just been cleared because the accusations that kim Ye were making against her of like being a liar and a snake and like switching up mm -hmm. on kanye and being able to be mentioned in his music and shit like now we all know that Taylor was not, like, lying and, like, this, mm -hmm. you know. In Taylor and Kanye's, like, relationship in the public eye from the VMAs in, like, 2013 or whatever the fuck, 2012 or whatever the fuck, in which mm -hmm. Kanye grabbed the mic from her, all the way up to now, we have seen her truth be realized 
after she has faced this huge public ridiculing and shaming for shit that she didn't really do or shit that she was not in the wrong for, you know, Mm -hmm. that something similar could happen with, you know, her gay allegations or whatever. But, you know, we'll see, I guess. My main concern with Midnight's is that I'm so curious as to the genre, the mix of genres. She's talking about how she wrote these over the course of like her all different points in her career as you were talking about like you know which songs could fit into which era or which album but what what I'm curious about is that is it going to have a holistic sound the way all of her previous albums have had where it's like 1989 and love are like pop like reputation is more like I don't know the intersection of like pop and more hip-hop influenced sounds essentially Mm -hmm. more synth sounds and then folklore and evermore were obviously like the chill like indie sound and then her previous albums were just like country and country pop so this album is it we get a taylor swift country song like (laughs) not not like upbeat like modern country but like a real a real back Back to the grass, like, country song. I mean, one of my favorite... From adult Taylor. One of my favorite Beyonce songs of all time is Daddy Lessons. Like, Mm -hmm. I love that song so much. And in the context of what Formation looks like... Not Formation, fuck. As what Lemonade looks like as an album. Mm -hmm. And the, like, singles off of it, like Formation. And the way that it was presented... And the differing, like, there's a rock song in it. There's, you know, like, there's so many different types of songs on Lemonade. It's not one cohesive sound the way that I think a lot of her albums are. That, yeah, I, I I don't know. Maybe Taylor is gonna go in that direction. Midnight's is gonna be is gonna be Lemonade (laughs) in in that the genre. Well, actually, and possibly multiple things. But yeah, I think I think because Lemonade. When you look, like, all the, well, we talked about this in the Renaissance episode, where, in comparing Lemonade and the Renaissance album, where it's like, Lemonade, each song sounds different from each other, but it's, like, the same genre throughout a song, whereas in Renaissance, so many different sounds are being used at the same time, but Mm -hmm. the overall album sounds very cohesive, Mm -hmm. and I think that for Folklore and Evermore, I think- The overall sound. And all of her albums, yeah, yeah, but- just coming off, you know, the heels of those, those really have overall, you know, similar sounding. Like, like the mm-hmm. album sounds whole mm-hmm. and cohesive. And I think Midnight's is really going to be where she maybe does some genre mixing. But also, since these are all songs that obviously have not been released before, there's a reason why... They were not. Yeah. And like, what's the, the difference so it's, between what she adds to her vault songs versus what's going on here, you know? And I was also thinking about that as well. It's like, I'm, this is the, another, okay, I have a couple thoughts. One, I think that they're like, there's a possibility that Midnight's is going to sound cohesive because mm-hmm. all of these other songs got rejected because they didn't sound the way that Taylor that Swift album was supposed to sound worked. in that yeah. album. Yeah. So I think that 
all it's possible that these are all going to have a similar sound but this sound that we're going to get with Midnight's never really fit with any of the other albums. Two, the other thing is, back to the gaylorism and gay allegations, is that, you know, part of the concept for this album is that it's the idea of, like, Midnight's and being up, all, all the different ways that you can experience this one particular time, but I think the fact that she has now has, over the course of her career, 13 tracks that kind of have this running motif and theme that ties them all. Mm -hmm. What else haunts gay people so perpetually <laughs> except for thinking about their sexuality and relationships to themselves and the people around them in the heights of their joy and in their lowest of lows, before coming out or being comfortable to the degree that one finds comfort, you know? Because, like, like, I think about myself now and I feel very comfortable with how, quote-unquote, out I am or how many people know. But I haven't formally come out to people in a really, really long time, you know? So it's like, I don't even know if I can say that I'm like, well, I am out. But it, anyways, so I think that's the other thing. It's like, what is something that could be on Taylor's mind when she's 16, 18, discovering her, like sexuality for the first time that could still be haunting Taylor Swift, 32-year-old woman, now at this point in her career, that she hasn't otherwise talked about, that mm -hmm. isn't on the Volt tracks, that fits in with the concept description that she's give, that she's put on her post, that is something so intimate, something that influences her social life, private life, public life. Like, if this is what is tying all of these songs together over the course of her career, I feel like her being gay fits so well into this. And of course I say this about so many Taylor Swift projects, but I feel like here, more explicitly than any other time, any other gay moment in her career, do we see, like, real... Like, not like real evidence because I'm obviously a gayler, but like, I think more object, like, like, you could explain this to someone who maybe doesn't know anything about gayler, leave out all of the other theories, leave out everything else, and just look at what is mm. happening right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that gayler has pretty strong legs to stand on, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I also think that with Folklore and Evermore, well, Folklore specifically, being the album that drew in a lot of people who were indifferent to Taylor Swift before, like knew yeah. her to be a pop icon, knew her to be someone that people loved and really didn't feel anything about to being like, oh, she is a favorite artist. Because that was what Folklore mm -hmm. was for a lot of people. Yeah. And for us, it was yeah. like, wait, yeah. she's a writer, writer. That's what, yeah. like, and she's such a smart, you know, she's a, she's, she's slaying with her capitalism, uh, capitalism, <laughs> because yeah. she is a great businesswoman in the way that she released mm -hmm. Folklore Evermore. Then a couple re-recordings to sort of mm -hmm. get back in touch with her old fans and re mm -hmm. and introduce her new fans to her old stuff and now she's yeah. giving us something new so what's new is going to be something that speaks to both the folklore evermore 
drawn in Swifties mm-hmm. and people who have been in this shit for fucking ever in a way mm-hmm. that nothing we've seen of her since has been able to do because previously she wasn't really respected as a writer, uh, as an intellectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was more seen as just, you know, your pop artist, celebrity figure and who made your standard pop song or made your standard country song. But now she has all, she has the the awards and the accolades and the praise and mm-hmm. the, like, you know, this shit is under her belt. Exactly. She has a doctor, she's Dr. Taylor Swift. <laughs> exactly. Put some goddamn respect on her name. <laughs> so now with Midnight's, it's going to be such an interesting culmination of the sound and style of writing that both brought in her fans from 2007 to 2018 and from 2020 till you know like it's gonna be so it's gonna be so interesting and I've also seen some screenshots of Midnight's already being categorized on like Apple Music or something or on her store as like rock Mm -hmm. Or something like that. Mm. I don't know how legit that is. Who knows? But I'm like, I don't know how. This is kind of scary to me. Because you know I don't like rock. But also, at the same time, like there's so much. I would love a Taylor Swift rock album. Capacity for. Like, I mean, I think the worst outcome is that I'm going to be like, ugh, that's not my thing. But but you just said you're really into forever and always. And I want to rock. But that's a country. Forever and always. So bad. But it has, when you listen to it, it has the feeling of a rock song. Even though it needs, it needs the better than revenge treatment. I was going to say better than revenge sounds like a rock song. And there's another, there's a couple off of Speak Now. Speak Now needs to be rockified harder. I think some of Taylor Swift. Some of Red sounds pretty rock. Some of 1989 and how she performs it, like ways that she is performing. Oh, when she does Reputation, Mm -hmm. she's a rock star. Even (laughs) have the sound. What I'm thinking about is like, what if Midnight's is giving us very like Fiona Apple folk rock, like alternative sounds. Like I would live because that would be so good. Like, that would be, be so, so fucking iconic. incredible. We already think that Folklore is the album for her. Like, you know, that was yeah. her, that was her Grammy Grammy. And like, that was the, that was like, okay, well, she had it in the bag, you know? Mm-hmm. But this album might even be like, even so much more than that, if it diversifies its sound more so than what Folklore and Evermore sound like uh and also Mm -hmm. it's going to be inherent to the nature of the theme like midnights they're gonna sound different you know like if the sound is diversified but it brings in all of those elements of like country and rock and pop and folk and indie like bringing in these sounds together on one album in the way that you know fiona apple is known as a like rock alternative artist, but her songs mm-hmm. all sound so different from each other, even from the same album, you know? So I yeah. think like how T- 
Taylor Swift is gonna move with Midnight's is gonna be so fucking amazing to see. And I'm just so thrilled. Like, October 21st, you cannot come fast enough. Like, also, girl, why would you, why, when you, your ass knows that when you posted about folklore and then dropped it the next day, everyone was seated as hell. So, I mean, it's, it's a smart, it's a smart move on her part to be like announcing this album pretty far in advance because it's building so much of the hype around it because mm-hmm. everyone wants to know her next move after Folklore Evermore and the re-recordings that like people are waiting, including us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but oh God, I, I think that the high expectations everyone has for this album, I just don't think she's going to disappoint. Like, I think that she's just going to deliver. You know? I, I don't think she's going to disappoint. I think, obviously, she's going to subvert the expectation, which, mm-hmm. because I know she's going to subvert it, it makes it impossible for me to form mm-hmm, mm-hmm. any, like, conclusive expectation. That leaves me just reeling, thinking about, okay, so how is she going to subvert? Every, every time that I think Every of bait what and she switch was do, a work of art. Well, exactly. But it's like, every time I think of what she could do... I know to rule that thought out because that means that she's already thought of it. <laughs> no, right, right, right. It's not going to do it. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I need to brainstorm as much as I can about what this album is going to be if I were making it so that I know what it's not. Like, that's the closest way that I can figure out what it's not going to be. Because so I'm like, if yeah. me, a simpleton, not <laughs> like so many degrees removed from Taylor Swift herself, can think of, oh, she might do this. Then that means that five minutes into making the album, she thought of that and scratched it. Or thought of mm-hmm. it, tried it, didn't like You know, like, and and I think that's true for, you know, not to talk down on people who consume Taylor Swift, but I, I'm saying that as a sign of her own genius, of her own mm-hmm. creative prowess, that she, she already knows and she has her finger on the pulse, okay? She's still running her own Tumblr sites. She's still on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Like, she still knows what people are, are saying. So I, I think, like, as, as much as I can rule out or, or how creative my mind can get outside of the box, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm getting, like, closer. But there's, I will never feel confident about what Taylor's next sound is going to be until I hear, until it is in my eardrums, in my head. And I'm I'm so excited. I I understand why she announced it two months before. I don't think it's because she's really working the PR, you know, trying to get this album up. Like, yeah. everyone's going to be fucking seated. Yeah. But I'm like, why the two months? And also, it's like... The anticipation is just killing me. It, it literally is. I'm like, girl, you know that you could drop it right now and you're going to be at the top of the charts. Like, why are you making it <laughs> two months? Like, you know you're going to get your coin. You know you're yeah. going to get your hype. You know you're yeah. going to get your press. Like, why are we waiting two months? Like, maybe maybe give me, like, a week. Have a week's worth of anticipation. Yeah. I'm supposed to be sitting with this for right. two months? Yeah. No. Girl, I'm itching at my fucking skin. Yeah, like, I'm please. crawling up the walls already. And we still got T minus, like, fucking 60 days. It like, hasn't girl? even been 24 hours right. of this. Right. Like, <laughs> it's... It's exhausting being a Swifty. People don't talk about the fucking part-time job that it is to be a Swifty. And it's like, uh, 
like I am already so insufferable about it. Like as it gets closer, like people are gonna start hosting interventions over this shit because <laughs> like, we know midnight is coming on October twenty first. We know yeah. that you're busy that night and the seventy two hours after. Like you have mm-hmm. to stop telling people. Yeah, okay. yeah. But it hit up my professor being like, can I get an extension? Because right. I have some extenuating circumstances. <laughs> like, please. <laughs> oh. Well, I think my first tweet about this news was banks and government buildings are going to be yeah. closed on October 21st. Yeah. Like, it is a government holiday. I think it's going to be so funny if this album comes out and she does do press and talk about it and does year like happy birthday post to it and still evermore gets nothing like we just go from like folklore to midnights yeah and don't touch evermore yeah yeah if evermore yeah. continues to get paid dust that will be the most the loudest proof of her yeah undeniable homosexuality like girl we we literally I, your silences silence speaks louder than words and literally this is, <laughs> this is her very first night yeah using you instead of her when it should have clearly been her like that yeah. silence loud as hell yeah. silence on evermore loud as hell exactly okay sorry a set change was necessary i fear if you're watching this on patreon sunny has yes. just moved in the room because <laughs> i had to sit in a different chair i don't know it was just like the vibes you know Anyway, just like Sunny shifted in the room, we will be shifting the topic. <laughs> what we... in the world kind of segue is that? What the f- I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying shit. It's one of those things that's so bad that it, it kind of circled back to good again. <laughs> that was Thank you. so Thank you. funny. And so bad. So casually cruel in the name of being honest. Oh my God, I also thought of a joke (laughs) as I was leaving about I've never heard silence quite this loud. I've never heard silence quite this loud. Exactly. Now I'm standing alone in a crowded room. She, She knew, she knows. I think he knows. I think he, they, Taylor knows. He, Thaler knows. Like. uh, Okay, we we have to stop somewhere. (laughs) we have to to move on sometimes we should just do an episode but it's just us just saying different taylor swift quotes back back and forth like nonsensical just (laughs) just Just saying words literally just us saying words yeah i mean that is this podcast granted but this podcast is state and revolution lines from state and revolution and taylor swift discography sewn together (laughs) <laughs> stitched episode together episode after episode yeah mm-hmm. hung together by a thread that ties the two the invisible string <laughs> please we have to stop we can't keep we can't keep coming back to this okay all right so do you want to introduce our second segment of the pod for today i think it's also somewhat non-traditional like our first part in which it's like not hot takes necessarily it's more just our thoughts on the podcast but anyway yeah not thoughts, so, thoughts on the podcast, thoughts on Taylor Swift's new bullshit. Yes. And for the shared media portion, today we're going to be talking about me and Sonny's individual number one gay movies that we mm-hmm. have now watched of each other's. Mine mm-hmm. being Summerland 2020 and Sonny's being The Handmaiden 2016. So we have now both watch these movies that 
to, to us are so so yummy delicious because we share so many like shiva baby is something that we yeah because we made a youtube video tier ranking a bunch of lesbian yeah. films that we've both watched which is on my youtube channel i'm a booktuber guys yeah. at a sunny book nook on mm-hmm. youtube that is really fun fun video great video very you fun should video. watch it i will link it in the description but it, it's it's great if you haven't seen it already but in it i mention the handmaiden and so many people were in the mm-hmm. comments being like Renaissance hasn't seen The Handmaiden? Or like, oh, Handmaiden is top tier, scripture for sure. So now yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. a lot of people were waiting for this. A lot of people were waiting yeah. and seated for Renaissance The Handmaiden thoughts, you know? Yeah. And yeah. with Summerland, you've been talking about it and like bullying me about it for like <laughs> at, like two yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Finally sat my white ass down and watched it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny for multiple layers of humor there. <laughs> I think our individual movies show mm-hmm. exactly like in the Venn diagram of yeah. like Renaissance. Yeah. These are things that are really like The Handmaiden, even though we'll get into it, I think it will always be your movie. Yeah. And Summerland will always be my movie. Even yeah. though like the things that we enjoy together, we really enjoy together and are both. Yeah. Would be a part of our individual tastes, regardless mm-hmm. of our friendship. But mm-hmm. I think that these two movies are like a sunny movie and a renaissance movie. Yes, like, heavy, sure. heavy. Well, The Handmaiden is just so much more popular or well-known or at least heard of than Summerland. Because Summerland is an like independent-ass film. Like, press was $5.00. It mm-hmm. came out during the summer of the pandemic, so like even all of the Q and A's and stuff, like there weren't any live events or a live premiere for the movie. Like, and it's also like The Handmaiden came out in 2016, and Summerland came out in 2020. So it's like there's also been less time for people to hear about it. So I'm still on my personal PR train for yeah. Summerland. So in that ways, I still throw it around a lot, but it's not a movie that I can drop in conversation without having to explain it i think especially if i'm uh-huh. talking about like lesbian movies with other people in the way that if uh-huh. you bring up the handmaiden in the right audience like mm-hmm. most people will have heard of it or have seen it or loved it mm-hmm. or, you know something like that so mm-hmm. that's like but i mean that doesn't have anything to do with like our differences it's mostly just like one how it's these films is like yeah it's like it's just you can look at the numbers one is way more like popular mm-hmm. and has been watched mm-hmm. more than the other. So I think that because these are both like identity defining favorite movies mm-hmm. for us, mm-hmm. do you, and because Summerland is a bit, is like not as well known, and yeah. I haven't told you any of my thoughts about Summerland yet. So no, do you want to get no. into that? <laughs> Me do you want to? Do you want like, to? No. <laughs> well, I have seen your letterbox review, I have seen the stars. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I can live with that. You can sleep at night, like... Yeah. I think you bitches are gonna stay to listen for my handmaiden thoughts, so I don't want you clicking off too soon into the episode. So we'll leave you hanging, and we'll start with Summerland. Me and my Taylor Swift businesswoman era, I'm getting into No, my, we are hashtag capitalists. We are capitalists. <laughs> yeah. I had started and had just entered my Gemma Arditon era, like, maybe... Three months before Summerland came out, I think I discovered Gemma Arditon, like, for real, for real, in either April or May, 
and Summerland came out August 1st. And so in between this time, I had like essentially become obsessed with her and I started watching all of her movies and then Summerland came out. So I watched Summerland. It came out on Amazon Prime at min the midnight of like the beginning of August 1st and I I pressed play. I, I rented yeah. that shit. I dropped yeah. the 3 dollars and I watched mm-hmm. it. So for me, Summerland initially was wrapped up in... Also, Gugumbata Ra is in it, and it's directed by a woman who originally worked on a lot of like plays and did a lot of live theater, and British live theater is something that I'm really interested in, even though it's very difficult to be interested in so far away. Anyway, so a lot of it is wrapped up in that, and now in the two years... Oh, also, because I watched it the moment that it dropped, I had no preconceived notion of what the plot was, what was happening, what people thought of it, how it was going to be received at all before going into it. And then in the two years since it has come out, I've rewatched it a number of times, obviously. And I still love the movie, clearly, but I have to remember that like obviously watching it two years after it's already come out versus like for the first time versus watching it the night that it came out is gonna like change people's perception I guess of the movie but just know I'm prepared for that and that's something that I acknowledge (laughs) you've taken into consideration yeah I've taken into consideration I rated it like four stars on Letterboxd and I think I stand by that rating I don't remember what my review was. Probably something stupid. It was uh, like I, a one-liner. It, it, did, it didn't spoil any of your thoughts. It didn't debut any opinions. No, exactly. And that was the intention, I fear. Yeah. I liked that it was a shorter movie. Slay, mm-hmm. slay. Mm-hmm. And I noticed how it was very Taylor Swift core. It was very yes. like... 22, Mad Woman, Folklore Deluxe, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. those vibes were heavy. Mm -hmm. There were definitely things that I was like, oh, oh, the Taylor references here are, or like the, the, crossroads at which they could meet are great go go kind of crazy to be honest yes even like the cardigan betty situation is crazy like because the framing device of the story is very the great gatsby like i'm writing this Mm -hmm. letter and this is and then like we get into what happened you know Mm -hmm. but then the the reveal at the end or like the ultimate resolution is something that's very like sweet and wholesome and very much about a relationship over a passage of time through the lens of a woman who is super bitter and isolated. They say she was seen on occasion pacing the rock staring out at the midnight sea. Literally. Uh, in with a feud with her neighbor, she stole his dog and dialed a key lime green. Like, literally. And that's half of the movie right there for you. That's (laughs) a quarter of Summerland right there. Yeah, the the witchy versions of all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like it her, was her very witch much allegations, that. her spy allegations. Exactly, exactly. So I thought that the set was so beautiful, like the actual house and the ocean side, and then them going off and, and sitting in these like beautiful fields, looking at these castles. Like, what the fuck? Why am mm-hmm. I not there right now? 
this is sick. This is sick. And her driving her little busted ass car. Like, yeah. I thought it was really sweet. And the emotional peaks and heights of the movie that were definitely tied to both like this idea of like a lost love, a lost lesbian love Mm -hmm. to time, and then World War II, and also our main character played by Gemma Arterton's like position as a academic like her literally crawling up walls writing in blood type Mm -hmm. thing that's going on and then her relationship with the children in town like very sweet Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean I think I I understand besides despite not really seeing Gemma Arterton movies specifically I get why Mm -hmm. you would be obsessed with her based off of this one movie that I've seen of her being the main character like that might be the biggest it, sunny win I've ever heard or received. <laughs> the thing is, is that something that really bothers me about white people's faces is how. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'm so dead ass. Like, mm-hmm. is when they raise their eyebrows and you can see the wrinkles in the forehead. You are like... so ageist and sexy. <laughs> No, no, no. No, you wanted everyone pumped and Botox to the high No, no. Because, like, look at at me. Like, there's not really... Because you are redacted age years old. Like, Gemma is (laughs) not that. No, that's not why. My mom also doesn't have them. And neither does, like, her aunt or whatever. Like, it's not... It's not the actual wrinkles. It's the fact that, like... Because, like, your average, like, early 20s or even teenage girl who does the, like that I don't know I don't like it I think it's not normal <laughs> okay listeners of the pod it is normal and you can disregard Sunny's opinion on that I mean like no, I get I mean... it but the way you're presenting it is like so awful and twisted like anyway I so... mean we all have our pet peeves about white people's faces like that's not new. I'm not I'm not bashing that detail in particular what Gemma Arterton like looks like and how she was filmed and stuff and how she was styled like her outfits were very slay very like you know her her academia woman 20th century I love her coats so much she has great coats and great sweaters in the movie her playing the main character being this like cunty traumatized type like Mm -hmm. character was was definitely real AF because it's like her as a character is so mean and bitter and cruel for no reason, but then we see that change over the course of, and it's not even for. But no it's also reason. not for. Yeah, I was gonna say it's not for like, no reason. Well, the way that she treats people. One of the opening scenes is her. Oh my god, the actress like her getting the chocolate ration yeah. and then like not giving it to the child. I was like, okay, bitch, whatever. And then her so, lighting a cigarette to a screaming child in the background. That's one of my favorite shots or moments in film of all time because I think it's so funny. I mean, I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was sad because I like kids and. I thought that was mean, but what's funny is that I, in person, am much meaner than you, but you like mean characters much more than I do. Like, I I am actually a cunt, which you don't love, which is sad, but with (laughs) characters, you love, but I think cunty characters, when it's outside of, like, literature, mostly, I would say, it 
doesn't really work for me because I'm like, you want to be like me, but you're not like me. Like you, like you want to be this like evil mean person or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's just not giving. Cause like when I see someone, for example, that interaction with the kid, mm-hmm. I'm just like, okay, so your ex left you 20 years ago, five years ago, and now you're going to be a, a bitch to this woman in the store. During wartime, under these conditions, I was just like, okay. She is in no obligation to give a child chocolate just because she well, wants. Well, obviously, chocolate. obviously, but the thing is, is that I still think that that is stupid, and I mean, I well, get that's why in the movie you wouldn't even you would just steal chocolate out of the store. You wouldn't even have to use your ration in the first place. <laughs> Yeah, but I would still give it to the fucking kid. But, okay, the mom, who is of the Mm -hmm. child, she plays, she's an actress. The actress Mm -hmm. of her plays um, a role in this other show that I tried watching that I don't even remember what it's called because I don't even remember. But anyways, when she popped up on screen, I was like, wait, I recognize you. And that was a weird moment for me because that doesn't happen to me that often. That's because she wasn't a white woman and you can't tell white people apart. So that's why you're able to recognize her from another project. No, I really cannot. <laughs> so that but, that's why you're like, oh, I finally recognize someone. Yeah, because they weren't white. <laughs> but I also I also have to admit, I I think at this point, I have such a finely tuned white people eye because I've I've grown up mm-hmm. around so many of them, plus mm-hmm. the, like media, that two white people who probably look alike, I can't see as looking alike, but. You know what I mean? It's like the reverse problem. Anyway, so yeah, I think like a cunty traumatized queen. I obviously I become more empathetic towards her as she becomes more empathetic throughout the book, throughout the mm-hmm. movie. I also thought it was funny the way that the movie tried to convey her as like a serious academic in how she was like filmed and like her crazed flipping through books and like, oh yeah, yeah I wrote those. That was kind of funny yeah. to me. Like this very yeah. much was and feels like and you can tell that it is like a an English teacher's like passion project of a story like it's so evident that is have you done any research on Jessica Swale no but you told me about some stuff about her did I tell you that she was an English teacher yeah I think about one of your oomphs or something Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I did. I remember the conversation. Okay, I thought you just pulled that out, and I was like, oh, gee, that's kind of gaggy because she was an English teacher. But no, babe. I, I just have memory. About- like, <laughs> I was going to say that the child actors are not good. <laughs> really? No, they were not that good. They were not serving and giving. I mean, okay, the what little girl was more than the little boy, I would say. The little girl Frank? was doing, a, doing more than Frank. But I was like, Frank, get your acting game Edie up. Edie is the name of the girl. Yeah. Well, I think, I think this is his, like, first role or whatever. But I thought he was cute. I thought he was adorable. Yeah, but the cuteness was was working for the acting that wasn't as there. The cuteness was a, an attempt to distract. It's like when you... I mean, it's like when an actress can't act, but she's hot, so, like, it's fine. Yeah. That was that like, kid a lot. being cute. It's not like, like he couldn't seeing... act. It was just that, like, I wasn't really believing. I wasn't buying it for a lot of it. Huh. Towards the beginning half, mostly. I was like, girl. Oh, okay. It was interesting to see a period drama that 
represents or that portrays non-white characters without the pastel liberalism of like Mm -hmm. Bridgerton but that also doesn't really explain or rely on race relations really at all like as a part Mm -hmm. of the narrative storytelling it also makes me think about whether when writing the script they had considered what these actresses would look like or whether it Mm -hmm. or like who they would be played by because I could easily see it also just be like whoever essentially like it would just yeah it could be played by anyone It, it was more important that the main character of the quote-unquote witch was white because yeah. otherwise she would have been ostracized from the town for, like, different reasons. But yeah. the other character, I didn't really think it mattered, you know, what she looked like as long as the actors that were cast as, like, her children or whatever, just it just made sense. And it did. Mm-hmm. So there was that. So it was nice to see that where, because like in other like lesbian or lesbian coded movies, like with passing, obviously the whole relationship is hinges upon the nature of race relations or even in the handmaiden. It's all very much about race and class and nationality and colonialism. That Mm -hmm. is what hinges people's relationships with each other. Whereas here it's, it's very, much a fantasy world type of movie. It's Summerland. It's it's the Summerland yeah. idea of uh, essentially like a heaven, this ephemeral fantasy land that might not or might exist is what this movie is so heavily grounded in. Like even the sorrows and losses in realities of life in one way or the other in like in terms of war or loss or what tragedy all of it is still in the haze and contained to this beautiful and whimsical again it's very sweet like Mm -hmm. it's literally just Mm -hmm. like very sugary in how it presents what's going on and obviously it's intentional as you know like I love I like things that are a little dark I like things that really? are a little a little disturbed. So yeah. again, another reason why it's not like a fave fave, but I don't have that many criticisms. I don't think it's a perfect movie mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. one that I like. It's one I enjoy, but I wouldn't say is one of my favorites. But mm-hmm. I also don't have a lot of like real criticisms. It's more of just like, okay, mm-hmm. well, there's this and this and I thought it was interesting that this happened. But mm-hmm. Yeah, anyways, those are my thoughts. You're reacting in a way that was not at all you screaming, crying, and throwing up over A League of Your Own on our bonus Patreon episode. Because when I said one word. You were so nasty. You were so nasty and twisted and pointed during the recording of that bonus episode. I don't even like a lot of these bitches like that, you know? Like, I just don't. So Ooh, don't even you don't even want to light that fire again. Like I Ugh, I can't even so hear you please. say the words. It makes I can't. I can't. I didn't I, even I, say I, anything like, specific. Like let's be I, I know, what like, are, <laughs> I have to I have to look away. Hold on. I have to regather myself. This is like if when I was like thinking of like okay, obviously I'm recommending this to you. 
you watching it. Your opinions that you have, that you have now said, is what I imagined the best case scenario of what some <laughs> reactions to this movie would be. So I'm feeling really pleased and happy as the person who this is the favorite movie of and yeah. as a friend of yours. The introducee. Um, yeah. Or introducer. Introducer. You're the introducee. Yeah. And I think because, again, saying how, like, The Handmaiden is a very sunny movie and Summerland is a very, mm -hmm. like, renaissance movie and how we diverge, I think, like, where we diverge is that you lean darker. Like, in the things that we share to you, it could go darker and be better. Mm -hmm. And, like, for me, I'm, like, I lean more sweet in that way. I, yeah. like, I like... You're a sitcom watcher at the end of the day. I am. That that is my roots. No matter how far I stray, yeah, I I'm I'm a sitcom girl to my core. So even though I wouldn't say that Summerland has the vibes oh, yeah. of a sitcom, no, not at all. But it has that general sweetness and happiness um, and underlying constant and, and the, joy. Yeah, and I and I think while when I was watching the movie for the first time, losing my goddamn mind. Crying, not crying, laughing, screaming, all of that. Please. This is it what generally... gay does to your mind. <laughs> one one year on Literally. gay. One year on lesbian movie. Literally. I, I still felt relatively safe. I was like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get away out of this. We're we're gonna we're gonna make it work. We're gonna pull through. And and I still felt generally safe during the film, which I don't think can be said for like The Handmaiden <laughs> where in which you know once you see it and you see the ending it's like you know the ending but the ride to get there I wouldn't say that safety is necessarily oh, no. the underlying feeling oh, not at that all. that is is the undercurrent of of the film but before we go into The Handmaiden like in terms of my thoughts on Summerland I loved it I think for the casting reason like you said like Vera didn't necessarily have to be played by Gugu Mbatha-Ra, besides the fact that, like, Frank obviously had to look like he could be a son of her, or, you know, like, that casting aspect. And that is true in terms of how Jessica talked about casting the film as well, because she's worked with Gemma and Gugu before, in other projects before, and actually Gugu Mbatha-Ra and Jessica are long-term friends and Gemma and Jessica were friends before this movie. And the character of Alice was actually supposed to be older than she was, but they made, um, in, in the like timeline that we see the most of, but they made her younger so that Jessica really wanted Gemma to play her. So then they kind of lined up the timelines that way. And in a lot of the interviews that Jessica, who is the writer and director of the film, she when she was, spoke about this film because she is not gay that we know she's in a long-term relationship with a, her boyfriend i think i think i don't think they're engaged or anything like that but she talked multiple times about saying she knew that she wanted to write a movie about a relationship and follow this relationship over a long period of time and she was like reflecting on how like her friends that she had who were in gay relationships had 
a lot of the similar problems and hangups and relationship qualms that like straight people that she had and that straight people had and that like at the end of the day when you're in a relationship it doesn't really matter if it's like gay or straight if something that separates you is like finances wanting a family not wanting a family like certain mm -hmm. values whatever you know stuff like that that's you know that makes sexuality and gender in this area kind of irrelevant and so to her it was less like making a quote-unquote gay movie but it's like well what ultimately breaks Vera and Alice apart initially isn't really like it is the homophobia of it all, but like not really. Like they have different views for their future that the other person is not able to fulfill. And that is a much more universal relationship experience. And then within that, it's like, well, why not be a gay relationship? Like, why not? Like it doesn't have to be, but it could be. In the same way that with Vera, it's like, she didn't have to be black. But also, why not? Like this could have, like this structure of the movie could very easily be like all white, heterosexual, you know, straightforward and still have the main plot unchanged. But it was very intentional, I think, for Jessica and the producers of the movie to be like, well, like, why? like intentionally open it up, but not change the story to be then about race or to then be about lesbianism in like a really explicit way that other period dramas do or that other period films are specifically about race and sexuality in that way in in the examples that you mentioned before and i think that's one of the reasons why it was such a refresh refreshing watch especially when it came out and after like the portrait of a lady on fire hype of like 2019 and early 2020 and other gay movies that are less sweet and are less open to other stories that are being told and i think now maybe watching Summerland in the context of like after a league of their own series coming out i feel i think like there's this general thing uh like zeitgeist moment of portraying race and sexuality stories in a particular period in a different way even if it's already been done before you know, if, if that makes sense and for me at least in my consumer experience like summerland really kicked that off for me um in a really in a very influential way i would say and also I just love the way that Summerland looks like the landscape the landscape shots in this movie like mm -hmm. take my breath away almost yeah. every single time I rewatch it the framing of the characters in the shots takes my breath away multiple times and yeah it's a very beautifully shot like the yeah, like like it's really good like to me I could like put the movie on and like mute it and just watch it and be entertained and be in awe um but that's just me so so that's like my little thing on summerland i also think that the way that alice's character is portrayed is really interesting in we there there were a lot more scenes 
from when they were younger and when they were in college because they meet in college that were cut from the final version yeah, and i could definitely tell yeah which is a little bit sad but i think like when alice and vera meet and alice is very shy very timid less outgoing than vera but then but then we see her and her personality kind of evolve over the course of the flashbacks but like with vera and then this sudden heartbreak it really hardens her and really like puts her off from the rest of the world until she meets frank and then she finds herself like figuring out that she can love someone else again in a very different way. She loves Frank in a very motherly way, but she hasn't loved anyone since. She hasn't felt sympathy for any other person since her heartbreak. So when, hashtag spoiler, if you don't want a spoiler for the movie, don't listen. So when she finds out that Frank is Vera's son and realizes that it's the same like charms that make her feel like a normal human being that are in both Vera and Frank. And then what happens over the course of the movie after that moment, I think is just such an interesting portrayal of like motherly love, romantic love, connection. What does it mean to love someone? It's also that she loves an extension of Vera regardless, without knowing that Vera is tied, she will always love and protect something that reminds her of Vera, which is why she is protective of Frank, even when she doesn't know why she's being endeared to this kid. And that relationship that Frank and Alice develop over the course of the movie of having this mother-son relationship independent of Vera, I think is really fundamental to the film in a way that, to me, speaks very hashtag real and true to my experience of having a technically step-parent who's like not my step-parent, um, but like a non-biological parent. And I think that like that was a really, an, another slay moment of the movie that has just, that always strikes me every time I rewatch it, even though I know the plot. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. The way that you can form a parent-child relationship with someone who you're not even related to, but then you realize you are in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was that was very sweet and that reveal like was was nice. Um I think the thing about Alice's character that also bothered me with my whole anti cunty <laughs> character situation is that like I think that I am generally not a fan of romantic relationships that have the vibe of like fuck everyone else it's just us or not even or not even that but like oh i hate everyone but you essentially which is a title of mm. the allison raskin gabby dunn <laughs> yeah. ya story. but i think mm. in romantic relationships an i hate everyone but you type situation mm-hmm. just will never work for me i don't know like that's mm. just not something that i like i think if you can't be a happy person outside of your love, you, you, need, you need to not be. Be better. Be nice I mean, to people. You'll feel better, too. I mean, come I th- on. I think that's true, but then that is why Alice's evolution is so important. Because we do see her 
happy outside of romantic love by the end of the movie before we see, again, another spoiler, Vera come back when it's her and Frank again towards the end of the movie and then the one like principal mayor person comes in and talks to her and Frank's playing with Edie or whatever. And we see her like happy and joyful and he's like, whoa, like, who are you? You have never been a nice person the mayor character was really sweet yeah he's he's i i love almost all of the like background characters i thought the teacher was doing too much and like her two scenes i'm like okay you're really milking these three lines that you have in this movie but (laughs) that's funny whatever i think like that is why like we do see alice heal before right she gets her like you know, before she sees the fruits of the struggle that she goes through in the end, we do see her kind of like become content with life and happy and and then and then she she ends up with her happy ending after she's already become content with the life that she's carved out and finally having coped with I have had this love that is now in the past and I'm okay with that. It's just still my favorite movie. To me It is a perfect movie because I don't, to me, there's nothing that it could do to make it better. I don't mean that it's a perfect movie and that it's the strongest script of all the movies or the strongest directing or anything like that. But to me, it's perfect in that there's nothing about it that I would really change to make it any better. And I I will probably love it for the rest of all time. Yeah, I get why it's like a personal sort of like favorite because of how it personally connects to you and then also mm-hmm. your individual love for and like interest in the both the narrative elements of the storytelling and of course the actress <laughs> <laughs> the movie commentary conversation that you have all been waiting for asking foaming for. at the mouth yeah fucking tearing down our our doors our walls like banging yeah that shit yeah 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 so i don't i don't have written notes obviously clearly um about the handmaiden but partly that is because uh, maybe our listeners don't know i mean i don't know unless you follow my letterbox or whatever but this watch for this episode was actually my third watch of the handmaiden and i'm happy to say Third watch is the charm for me. I get this movie now, uh-huh. and this past watch was the best watch experience of this movie yes. for me because there is so much going on that yeah. try for for me in in my initial watches trying to follow just simply what the fuck is going on on top of appreciating the camera work, costuming, mm. time frame, like the framing of, of how we find out information, following multiple, a lot of commentary is happening at the same time. Mm. A lot of different dynamics are constantly moving, shifting, and being portrayed at the same time. Yeah. For me, just trying to follow sim- the the simple baseline plot of the movie was so difficult for me that I was missing a lot of what makes the movie really good and enjoyable, uh-huh. essentially. 
But on this third watch, since I, I knew the plot better, because for my second watch, technically, which was with you in St. Louis, uh-huh. I hadn't remembered the plot, so I was still trying to follow it. Uh-huh. And therefore couldn't enjoy a lot of it. But this time, I knew what was going on. So now I could be like, okay, I know what this scene is, so now I can focus on everything else. And every time that I would notice a detail or notice something else, I was like, oh, that's genius. That is... Yeah. That is, like, movie making on a level that a lot of people are not at. (laughs) That is, that is, that is, is like, the genius organization that, one, I don't think would be appropriate for a lot of other movies. Like, I think The Handmaiden is the perfect. It's very dense as a story. Yeah. So it needs to have very skilled, like, everything else technically for it to work. Otherwise, it would have fallen apart. And also, it's clear that, like, the director and the creators of this have the skill, but I think using this much skill on a simpler plot would have looked, like, overdone. It it wouldn't look good. It wouldn't translate well. Mm -mm. Like, I think The Handmaiden is the... Or it being an adaption of Fingersmith, the book, which The Handmaiden isn't even the entirety of the book. Not even. I think... Hashtag playing in the space. Hashtag watch this space. <laughs> like, I think it was the perfect way to adapt it and then to show this level of skill. Like, The Handmaiden, I think, is, like, movie making at its best, for mm-hmm. sure. Like, creative mm-hmm. organizing on multiple levels on writing, performance, camera work, costuming, like, down to color grading, the yeah. way that the subtitles are, are two different colors mm-hmm. and what that represents. Like, it is at its best for sure yeah and, and, and i think it'll go down in like film history movie making history it already has as a yeah. movie from 2016 but like it's like gonna be like hitchcock level like 50 <laughs> years 70 yeah. years people are going to be watching the handmaiden not only because of its storytelling and you know lesbians are going to watch this yeah, forever anyways <laughs> yeah yeah but i think like its respect as a film is really First, and that's at the forefront Mm -hmm. of the movie, I think. This is a movie that film bros fuck with, even if they hate women. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, this is a good-ass movie. And I know this. Yeah. I know this because in real life, I've interacted with the people who like really like this movie and love Park Mm Chan-wook as a director, but are definitely Mm -hmm. some of the worst people you've ever met in your whole life. So, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's... it's undeniable that the technical element of this movie was is, is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Which is why when we had watched it together in St. Louis, when you had thought like, oh, it's like mid essentially, I was like, mm-hmm. are you on crack? Like, what are you well, talking about? It was like, I I. Which is why the my... look of the movie, like I like I knew that the directing was good. Right. Like like I knew that it was, the directing was good for me. What didn't connect in St. Louis that connected on this rewatch is how the directing and the story like parallel and inform each other in very interesting ways where like when I watched it before, I'd be like, okay, I know how the camera is moving. That's a cool shot. I can see these frames. I have some semblance of, of what it's trying to portray, but because I could either focus on the looks, like not like the looks, but like how the movie was looking, and 
the plot and figuring out the character dynamics at the same time, those two things weren't connecting for me. Whereas with this watch, I could see how a shot or a frame or a camera move in act one later informed or paralleled something that happened at the end of act two or act three. Like that just slightly more knowledge of the film increased the enjoyability. Whereas like before I was like, okay, I like these different aspects or whatever, but the way that they're coming together just isn't comfortable in my mind and body. And that is what was really decreasing my watch experience. Whereas on my third watch, and I think when I rewatch it in the future, it will only increase from here because now with every time I think I know the movie better where I am like, okay, now I can focus on this particular aspect and not, you know, miss anything else. It's, I know that there's so many other pockets of this movie that will be really satisfying to explore in future rewatches that I think like from this moment on, it will only get better and more satisfying. In a way that before it wasn't that I thought it was like, bad bad necessarily but it just wasn't all coming together like cohesively for me in my watch experience whereas now it has and I think it will only increase from here something I had tried to like explain to you or something I was thinking about oh you about. gave a two-hour film study I did lecture after this give movie, a seminar which I did <laughs> like pointed out things that I hadn't noticed before as well mm-hmm that w was obviously really valuable that it's not like I remembered word for word like when you're you were watching <laughs> but like right. re I was like okay that's like a different way to like enter the movie like mm -hmm. go into the movie watching experience that I think really changed my mindset that then made it possible for like this film or this rewatch to like click in the way that it did yeah, I mean, I think, like, for me, when I had first watched this movie, like, I've seen this movie, like, s I don't know, like, fucking ten times. Mm -hmm. Like, I've seen this movie a lot. So, when I had first watched it, I knew I was obsessed from the beginning. Like, like yeah. initially, I was, I had heard about it, I was like, okay, whatever. Which I think is so impressive. But. <laughs> I, like... Yeah, it, ahead, it is a it's a dense film. and But this is why, also, mm -hmm. my lack of knowledge of film and filmmaking was really key in me understand and me loving mm -hmm. the film initially because mm -hmm. all I was thinking about was the plot and the themes of the plot. Mm -hmm. I was watching it like I would read a book, right? Like I mm -hmm. I consumed things like I would consume and, and like the things that I would notice if they were like technically was because I knew they were technically off. It wasn't because I was noticing something that was interesting or good. Like for example, mm -hmm. When I was, again, to mention The Great Gatsby, the Baz Luhrmann movie, <laughs> when I was watching it, I was like, this is bad. <laughs> I was like, this is not good. Oh. Not because mm -hmm. the story isn't good. Because, like, whatever. Like, fine. I'm following mm -hmm. this plot of the story. It's pretty simple. I get it. But every other aspect of this movie is fucking terrible. So I hate it, right? That mm -hmm. is my way of looking at things. The story needs to be very top tier. And every other element 
either adds or detracts to that, but I don't notice if it's adding. I only notice if it's detracting. So mm. that is something, that's also I think why in our tier ranking video, I was like, uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire isn't like in my top tier because the plot is three things, you know? Like like this mm. actual story is is not things that are happening, it's a relationship. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's boring. I see a relationship every day. I don't give a fuck. The thing is, and the reason why I like Water Lilies more is because it's a plot. Like, it's a story, and the mm-hmm. two main characters are involved with each other in this very intimate queerness of girlhood, the divines, like, our love lasts so long type of way that also has conflict to it that is inherently tied to the plot, like, the plot plot, the actual story of this girl getting on a team and then the team doing this and then these boys have it. Like, you know, so that's that's something that I care about with movies. Most, first mm-hmm. and foremost, is does this story, does this narrative feel real? Does it feel compelling? Is it rich? Is it rich in storytelling? And that's what The Handmaiden offered to me right off the bat. And I think when I was doing my first watch of it, I was like, I had just started watching movies for real. And this was like before, way before the pandemic, I would say. And I was like sitting in my bed alone, seated. I was like, okay, let me watch this fucking movie because everyone's talking about it. Mm-hmm. And then I got to the, the scene in which... She says, you think I am, I am so-and-so, the handmaiden, but really my name is Suki and I'm from this. And like, we get the shot of her being in the the scammer house, (laughs) scammer Mm -hmm. HQ. Like we see her there with the babies and stuff. And we see her interacting with the different, like that bitchy girl who has a baby and Mm -hmm. the older woman who like runs the house. And then the dude with the stutter who is like her right hand man. And then the count. Mm -hmm the fake count like that scene when we first see that for the first time after we get that initial very continuous storyline of this girl gets picked up and sent to this huge manor to be the handmaiden and she's peeking in to see what the lady is like and then gets scared and we see her be very simple and very Mm -hmm. clumsy and silly essentially and then we get this snap of like that's what you think but actually, and then by that first time, I was like, I was hooked. I was like, oh, but actually? And I was like tuned in. Mm-hmm. And then every other time the movie baits and switches us, right? Like the movie yeah. was like, this is what you think you know, but actually. This is what you think you know, but actually. Like it does that mm-hmm. within each act, like multiple times. So yeah. as I was watching it, I was just like, <laughs> just like very, very enthralled and engaged with like the actual nature of the storytelling because the running themes in the back of my head was very much like oh my god this is about sex and power and colonialism and desire and male violence and like that was all buzzing and constantly there um Mm -hmm. because also like none of the cinematography none of the directing none of the acting none of that none of the set design the costumes none of that detracted from that from the Mm -hmm. baseline storytelling of the film and i didn't even know what to look out for as the way that those things influenced each other and helped enable the the other right like how the technical elements of making a movie coincides with like coincides with like the actual script of a movie or like the story of a movie I wasn't even thinking about that because I didn't have to because it's so seamless Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. something that you have to focus on but if you do you're like oh that's good like but I think 
Well, I, but I think that Handmaiden, like, you do have to focus on it because it does give you so much information. I think there are there are movies and there are shows that it's not like the directing is phenomenal, but it's not detracting oh, yeah. from. Yeah. The, it, it's very economic. It's very efficient directing, you know, it which isn't bad necessarily, again, if it's not detracting from the scene. But I think that the directing vision and the eye of the movie is so particular that it, it, it to me at least, it, which obviously this is different from your first watch experience, to me, it was so overwhelming the first and second time that I watched it. The intensity and the specificity of the framing that I almost couldn't focus on the plot or what was happening at any given yeah. time because I was yeah. so overwhelmed by what I was like watching, like actually seeing with my eyes that trying to follow the plot wasn't working for me. And also in the conversation that we had in St. Louis, like the way that it was pitched to me was very different than what the actual movie was. So while watching it for the first and more or less second time, I was not only looking very closely at the movie, but also looking at and for the wrong things or things that weren't being portrayed in the way that I assumed they were going to be, which also I think added heightened the discomfort in watching it because I felt like, oh, I thought that you were going to be portraying this and then you're not, but you're also very like strongly setting your foot down in this section that I feel is so removed and and that created a lot of like lack of harmony in my watch experience whereas when I watched it this time one more plot forward but also I knew the plot better and more of it and knowing that it wasn't like a lesbian or going into it not expecting a lesbian romance but I will admit that with this rewatch, partly because of knowing the plot better and also now being able to just focus on other things, I saw the love in the movie way more strongly. Like the relationship between Hideko and Suki made their evolution made way more sense to me. So, so sorry to all the OG handmaiden stands who are here and <laughs> have to like come to this. But like I saw it way more clearly then. Whereas before their scenes felt so disjointed to me. I'm like, this does not feel like two people developing a relationship. <laughs> like, like that's just how I felt. Whereas on this watch, I was like, oh, I'm I'm noticing like because it's again, it's one of those things where what they're saying and what they're portraying and then also what the director is doing are like three different but distinct and strong things that were happening that in my previous watches I didn't know what to what to invest in what to believe and that made it feel very disjointed whereas now I could see how they were all working together in a much more much more cohesive way that I was like oh that's that's kind of a genius way to portray the arc of her like from strangers to you know how we see them in the end like there isn't any other movie that portrays a any any kind of 
relate because there's a lot of dynamics and relationships in the movie but just looking at the hashtag romance one or two people falling in love thing yeah i was like whoa this is different and interesting like really good like genius like not a lot of people could think of of this yeah and that's why your initial response after we watched the movie together i was just like shocked and appalled at which is what launched me into my two-hour monologue slash seminar because i was just like I was essentially like, I don't think you get it. And I was like, this is why I think well, what I, I think you're like missing. I said I don't get right. it. Right. You were like, I don't think I get it. And I was like, yeah, you aren't because that's why you feel this way. Because if you got it, you wouldn't feel like mm-hmm. this. And I was right. Yeah. Exactly. So yes. like, because everyone I've seen this with or everyone I know mm-hmm. who has watched this movie has been like, that is one of my favorites of all time. That is one of the best mm-hmm. movies I've ever seen. Like, that is something that has been consistent with all of the showings that I've that I've hosted. <laughs> <laughs> with the sunny community over the years mm-hmm. so that when you responded this way i was like i was confused i was baffled and i was surprised i'll fully take this as like a f- flaw fault of mine you know like i'm not i'm not doubling down on this like i don't think that i'm a morally bad person for this being <laughs> my handmaiden experience you know like i'm, I'm not gonna right, uh, right, right. apologize for it but one, I did get there. Thank God, finally. Like, I think it would yeah. be scarier if it never yeah. clicked or, you know. Yeah. But. Then I really would have to come murder you, like. Yeah, but I, I think it's it's my personal taste as well, outside of, you know, Summerland and what we've been talking about. In reference to what you said is, like, because you watch movies as if it's, like, a book and the story being, like, a really rich story. Things like happening and the handmaiden is definitely something where things are happening because this movie is two and a half hours long and one thing that i thought was really impressive especially after this first watch is that no scene felt too long and nothing felt like it dragged on and -hmm. for that to be true about a movie that's two and a half hours long Mm -hmm. is fucking insane to feel like something Mm -hmm. is always happening and it does but for me i'm really in my era of how good can a movie or story be where almost close to nothing happens? I want mm-hmm. as little of events to happen as possible with the greatest amount of emotional impact. And that ratio to me is what I'm constantly searching for in movies that I really enjoy. And obviously I like super like, fast-paced movies like I I loved Birds of Prey immediately I loved Shiva Baby immediately but The Handmaiden it it overwhelmed my senses in multiple ways every time also this time I had the most stomach for the oh yeah more you have to know that there's gonna be violence and like a lot of it in this movie before going into it like and the last scene of like the count and the uncle like that that the chopping off the fingers yes that always Mm -hmm. makes my stomach turn and i still flinched a couple of times watching it like it is so it's so difficult to me the scene when i remember i almost felt like throwing up the first time in the first time i watched it in the scene where the uncle puts his gloved hands over the aunt and hideko when she's a girl like that, I almost stopped watching the movie at that scene. It was so 
difficult for me to watch and get past. So also part of the first time watching it is I couldn't pay attention because I was so viscerally affected by what I was watching as well that it, it was really difficult for me to like pay attention. And then each time that I've like had a bit of a stronger stomach watching it, I've been able to actually understand and pay attention to more, which also influenced it is like, the first watch was just never going to be enjoyable for me because I just simply did not have the stomach to watch it. Even it's though a that dark is, thriller. It's a dark yeah. thriller. First, no, so before it's a lesbian a, movie, before it's a period drama, before oh, anything else, it's a yeah. sick and twisted thriller. Thriller yeah. in that it's fast paced, things are happening, and also violence is happening. It's very explicit. Yeah, that's also not a criticism of the movie. I don't think that the movie should be less violent. I don't think that we should see less than what we do in the movie. It, those are the correct creative choices on every single way. And the way that the camera treats those scenes is also very important and very informative of the kind of commentary that the movie is actually making on what's happening, not only the portrayal of the violence, because I don't think that the movie condones what is oh, no. happening in yeah. the movie you the feel that that... disgust every time you mm -hmm. know you should be feeling disgust mm -hmm. and when you look, see the women be sexualized in the way that they are and then you see the mm -hmm. way that the men are perceiving them it just mm -hmm. it grosses you out so bad mm -hmm. it like the, the camera disgusts you and yeah. it's so it makes it so that even the false pretenses under which Hideko and Suki enter their first like sexual relationship, like we see that first sex scene in, the, in Act One, that mm -hmm. still feels pretty uncomfortable for us because we're like, oh girl, like what's even happening here? Like you are in such yeah. a precarious situation. That becomes that sets the baseline for the level of discomfort you're going to feel about sex in this movie. That only yeah. escalates exponentially. Yeah as it yeah. progresses, which then when we revisit the sex scene from Hideko's perspective in the second act, it's all, it's like, it's, it's so illuminating because Hideko mm -hmm. gets to experience playing the role of someone who genuinely knows nothing about sex, whereas Suki is able to fulfill the role that she's never had, she's never been given of being comfortable and wealthy and respected in society like that's what mm -hmm. they're both missing in their like this movie i think proves to us how the condition of womanhood across class lines means such particular things for you mm -hmm. where like because the count and suki come from similar class backgrounds they have similar goals and intentions of scamming their way to freedom and comfort but the way that the count can go about it and the way that suki can go about it very different first of all the count becomes the count suki becomes the handmaiden hence the title yeah. of the story but like what's also interesting is that it's not even that all women are victims in the story either because the mm -hmm. uh, first wife the housekeeper yeah. of yeah. the um fucking the the, the villain we see her specter of horror throughout the movie as well and mm -hmm. we don't really even like we that is a constant that's something that doesn't really change it doesn't really fluctuate it's a detail that's there and and very like real but not emphasized whereas like for obviously Hideko who's grown up in the lap of colonial luxury literally the 
like literally inheriting the rights to the gold mines, those who were traitors to the Korean people in mm-hmm. uh, in favor of the Japanese like imperial army and its occupation of the island, like were able to make this money. Hence where Hideko's money even comes from and why she is the target of her uncle's attempt, like her uncle trying to marry her, right? And so it's like so sick on so many levels, obviously, but Hideko is not, Hideko has not chosen to be, be, to be brought into the world in the position that she is, obviously. And for her position, for the person that she is, she's been trapped at this manor her whole life and forced to be sexually exploited from childhood by her uncle. So we see how like the the gendered reality of being in the upper colonial class can look very different from how Suki has had a lot of relative freedom in that she doesn't have to respect any laws or rules mm-hmm. because she's at the end of the day she's a pickpocket. She she her whole community she has a strong community of people who are also thieves <laughs> and sell babies to to the Japanese. We see this difference, right? But it, that's also why it's so interesting to see how the intimacy that Suki and Hideko have with each other like initially are so rooted in their roles as handmaiden or caretaker to this innocent like wilting flower of a rich girl and Mm -hmm. rich girl showing poor friend rich girl things like that's the two dynamics that they have that is what allows them to like but both of those things are not they're not sustainable long-term relationships like you can't always do that the a type Mm -hmm. of the servant servile relationship the the rich girl poor girl relationship like unless something gives in that dynamic in one of the other person's identities that can't go on for long right so mm-hmm. we see both of these storylines hit its peak and and hit a wall a point of no return once suki her pursuit of money wealth and comfort which she's never had and hideko's pursuit for freedom and autonomy which she's never had cross paths in which Suki decides to prioritize her ability to be comfortable over her love or her relationship with Hideko. And Hideko realizes that that is the case, but she only knows that that is the case because of the trickery that she has herself engaged in. So it's like, of course, Mm -hmm. it's just this tangled web of like lies that nonetheless belies a real, true, genuine feeling and love there because it's like, that's why with, you know, I do, I I do empathize with and recognize your love (laughs) of things that, shit that isn't happening. Like, like Mm -hmm. a story that is happening because it is nothing is happening. But I think that what you value in that is how it allows you to look at how people relate to each other and their own feelings when Mm -hmm. nothing is happening. Whereas in, in this movie at first glance, it just, it just seems like everything is happening, but nothing is happening with the relationship. When in reality, Mm -hmm. the relationship is what allows any of these things to even happen, right? Because had Hideko and Suki's intimacy never crossed the emotional lines that they did, 
they both could have been mm. screwed by each other's plans, essentially. It's like act one, all from Suki's perspective. Act two, mm-hmm. from Hideko's perspective. Act three, alternating their perspectives as well as the Count's perspective. Like, that mm-hmm. is so brilliant to me in terms of structure and yeah. in terms of humanizing all of the, all, like, both of these characters and why they are in love with each other and how they show mm-hmm. their love for each other. But it, if you don't know to look for that or if you go into the movie thinking that it's like a romance more so than like a thriller, like mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to necessarily see that. And in reality, like The Handmaiden is titled The Handmaiden because it, the role that Suki plays it is the key. It is what allows anything to happen, right? Like mm-hmm. it's the role that she takes on is a false one as well. And as is every other thing in this movie, everything is false. Nothing is real. Everything mm-hmm. crumbles once you touch it and look at it a little harder. And I think like, obviously that's a very apt like metaphor or allegory for how capitalism and colonialism like works and patriarchy and whatever while also exploring such like so deeply and with the amount of time that it does how class relations and colonial enterprises and gender informs your people's relationships dynamics and how they choose to live their lives so much like to such a high degree and that was that's why this movie will always be my favorite of all time it's so brilliant and i i think like i respect and i honor brilliance i love and i especially love it when it is so intellectually rich and it's just so like touching and moving because that because it is so good to me emotionally speaking like I don't really have to like a character I don't really have to like anything because what I find interesting at the end of the day is what's happening and how is what's happening being presented to us how well is what's happening being presented to us that isn't obviously removed from like the nature of cinematography or acting or like the relationships with the characterization, but that itself has to be the first and foremost like primary driver of any movie that I am going to love. I think it has to be about that and it has to be criticizing or embodying something that I find deeply important like intellectually and thus emotionally for me. I think it's so interesting that our two movies could both be chalked up under the the description of lesbian period drama, <laughs> but they are so two different, drastically yeah. different movies. And I think I think that that's also the thing is that as as someone who first and foremost is a lesbian period drama, or you know period piece enjoyer I think it makes sense that from the get I have people have been telling me to watch this movie to enjoy this movie oh if you like lesbian period dramas you're going to like this movie etc etc and I do think that's true obviously now that I'm at the point where I do really enjoy this movie and I see the love and there is this great love in this period piece of a movie that is not the primary demographic that I would recommend to this movie when being a lesbian period piece enjoyer is more have the connotations of it is that you either like 
sweet, depressing, slow, you know, like movies. Mm -hmm. And The Handmaiden is very much not that, even though it's very, very good at what it does. I think obviously people who are really into film, like filmmaking, film people should be the primary. But like horror movie, thriller movie, like because also part of what was difficult for me the first couple of times is just figuring out like who is saying like whose perspective whose eyes are we in right now it was really difficult for me to track that from act to act from scene to scene who who's narrating this even if there wasn't like a narration just like generally i felt lost but then because it it switches but it does it so well when you get it like which is essentially what you said to me and what so many other people have said to me in my journey with the handmaiden is that once yeah. it clicks it really does click and for the people who watch it the first time and fall in love with it and love this movie from the very first time that they see it i'm like whoa that is like so impressive because then you don't have to climb the mountain that i had to get to for <laughs> this movie to click but i also think that it's me not liking The Handmaiden doesn't feel forced. I think I think it would be really easy for me to sound like I'm bullshitting so that I don't get slapped <laughs> with, you know, hate right. for calling The Handmaiden mid. But it's it's a genuine, <laughs> like, change of perspective as the mm -hmm. viewer of the movie that has made my watch experience more enjoyable. It's not because it's just like, oh, it's my best friend's favorite movie, so I have <laughs> right. to like it kind of thing. It is a really impressive movie on multiple levels and I think the fact that however it came up that the director was going to do an adaption of Fingersmith and decide to make this fucking banger of a lesbian movie is like so crazy because it's like this level of like creative organization and acting and directing could have been done on any other movie you know like any other thriller horror scam movie and be brilliant and amazing and change cinema forever but the fact that it is The Handmaiden, the fact that this lesbian love is so integral, the fact that Hideko, like, the scene that impacted me the most in a different way than it had in my previous watches is towards the end when Hideko is feeding the poisonous wine from her mouth into the Count. And the first two times that I had seen that scene, I hated that scene because of the Count's actions and how he was behaving in the scene and I hated watching that especially at that point in the movie you've seen so much violence that I'm like I can't take it anymore but in this past watch I was really able to notice how desperate Hideko is to save Suki and she's like we like I like <laughs> that's her motherfucking show yeah world. like 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 I was able to see her perspective more in uh not outside of the victim role that i that you know because like she is in the act in the middle of being victimized by the count in this way but i saw her much more as an agent of her own what she wants to get done in that moment and her trying to drink the wine as fast as possible to influence the count to drink the wine and then realizing that he's not fucking drinking the wine she's like I gotta take this shit into my own hands. Takes his so I was putting it, and it like that was one of the most. At that point, I had already I was already more tapped into the 
quote unquote romance and love of it. But that scene stood out to me much more stronger in a, in a different way than it had mm. ever before. And now I was like, oh my God, like I love this scene. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it went from mm-hmm. something that made me like sick to my stomach to watch of being like, that is the greatest act of love and passion <laughs> and, you know, yes. wanting to do something bigger than yourself that I've ever seen. Yeah, because the, it's true. They it, This movie kind of shows like how the biggest act of like love that you can make is the sacrifices and the crazy hurdles you choose mm-hmm. to jump for mm-hmm. the safety and well-being of the other person at your own expense. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, Suki gets locked up in an asylum and eats a fucking bug in the rice ball. Yes. That, so that the, the her her and Hideko's plan can go as yes. can go as planned. Yes. Hideko like goes through with this sham marriage and puts up mm-hmm. with the count's behavior and essentially yeah. just like appeases his whims and messes mm-hmm. around with him, which she has plenty of experience of doing and controlling the the men's mm-hmm. emotions around her in her life, obviously. Yeah. And and Suki obviously has a lot of experience in being in terrible living conditions, um, in total squalor. So, like, they're they're doing what is familiar to them in order to help the other person. And that is what's, like, so... I mean, every time I get to that scene that you're talking about of, like, the wine, Mm -hmm. my heart starts beating. I'm just like, oh, is she going to make it? Is she going to, like... Like, (laughs) I'm always so excited for that scene because Mm -hmm. I'm like... (laughs) Just, like, on yeah. the edge of my seat being, like, his ass needs to pass out now. Like, please. Literally. Like, he needs to fall asleep. And I think, like, what's also so amazing about this movie is how it's still kind of hilarious. Like, like there are moments yeah. that are just, like, what? I'm laughing. Like, I'm literally mm-hmm. laughing. Like, the script is funny. And obviously it has to do with the directing and cinematography as well. Like, after said count gets drugged and he wakes up and he's, like, naked from the waist down. And, yeah. like, we only get that. And then they, he looks up and there's the two henchmen looking at him. <laughs> he's like, oh, <laughs> hey, guys. Like, that yeah. type of stuff. Or even... um even pretty early in on the movie, like all these different ways, well, like, all these different Suki things that happen. falling out of the bed, and yeah. when she Hit like, her head. which is yeah. yeah, hits her head, and that's so funny. And her like slip ups, and when she's like revealing her to, hand, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the funniest, but also like the sickest jokes that the film has is when Suki is holding Hideko because she almost tried to kill herself. And then yes. Suki gets so mad that she exactly. lets go. Yeah. And she's like ranting and pacing. Yeah. And then she realizes that yes. she is. Yes, yes, exactly. That scene, it's very funny. I'm like, I shouldn't be laughing, but that is so fucking funny. And because it's like the shot is like far away. So you see yes. them both struggling oh at the it's same time. It's so funny. It's, it's so, so like funny. classic humor in yeah that way yeah but it's also at such the it's at the emotional like peak of the film where you're like oh my god like everyone's everyone's desires and wants for this movie just are are fucking like it it, where they're hitting their their high points and then Mm -hmm. that happens and you're just like oh well that's 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 kind of hilarious the other thing about like all the slip-ups that suki makes and shit like that is that like like hideko thinks of suki as essentially just like a stupid girl like just a naive Mm -hmm. dumb servant girl that she can 
feel zero emotion about putting away. And Suki thinks Hideko is just going to be some rich cunt who she will feel nothing about putting away. So they Mm -hmm. both go in with their own preconceived notions that also informs, like, that's why Suki thinks Hideko has zero sexual experience, despite that not being the truth, and why Hideko thinks that Suki is, like, as as self-concerned as she is, like, or only looking out for her own skin, because, like, it's, it's true. Hideko mm-hmm. is sexually inexperienced. She's just been exposed to the idea of sex as presented in pornography, as presented yeah. in the male gaze. She, she is. Suki is looking out for her own skin. Because her mom was hung in a public square for being a thief. Like, yeah. Hideko is a rich cunt. Like, she, that's just who she is. Like, she was born into the lap of luxury. And even, like, the scene when they're running away from the manor and Suki just jumps the fence and jumps the, <laughs> the stone wall and, like, just runs. Yeah. And she looks over and Hideko, like, is, like, just standing there. Suki has to jump mm. back and, like, make a little staircase with their luggage for Hideko to be able to walk over it. Like, it's, like, yeah. those moments where it's, like, it's true that Hideko is essentially just like a dainty flower in many ways but it's it's like because of that that she's able to prevail against all odds and because suki is a a stupid naive girl but also with like a lot of cunning and, and mischievousness within her inherent to the nature of her scammer identity that she is able to express the emotions that she does like she very much wears her heart on her sleeve throughout the whole movie like she gets really mad when the count is being touchy-feely with Hideko she is struggling Mm -hmm. really hard to pretend to be someone that she's not and all her slip-ups are pretty funny you know but Mm -hmm. like it's because she is not that perceptive that she Mm -hmm. can we can even be in her perspective at the beginning of the movie and be totally given whiplash when she's put away because when we're in her perspective we are as ignorant and naive as she is we don't even know what we don't know until we find out like why she was put in the asylum which like that was something that i noticed in the comments of something i don't even remember. i was looking somewhere and someone had commented oh like i really wanted to watch the handmaiden but i got to like halfway through the movie and i hit like it it made me so mad that i stopped watching and i'm like what that is a crazy thing to say like i get it but also that's insane like that's insane because the halfway point of like that part of the movie of her being put into the asylum that's like not even one third of all the shit that like like we we, you don't even know Mm -hmm. what is the reality of what you've already been shown obviously Mm -hmm. that's the nature of the perspective throughout this film um so and anyways just so again i think is is something so brilliant about the movie because again it's two and a half hours long it is very long act one is like the first 58 you're already an hour in so again it's one of those things where it's like in a hashtag like normal movie and a less insane whiplashian psych wardian <laughs> movie <laughs> you know getting to the 50 minute mark and or a 58 minute mark and not loving a movie, yeah, it usually makes sense to be like, I don't know how this movie is gonna redeem itself for another hour and a half if you already are having visceral reactions or not fucking with it or whatever. Whereas like, 
in normal movie context, like if you're not like a film person, that makes sense. But in the context of the hate of the Handmaiden, that is a crazy ass place to be like, oh, I get the story and I don't like it. Because you don't, but you also don't know until you really watch the entire thing, even if you just watch the first two acts and you think, oh, I don't like it. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know where it could go from here or whatever. Like you, it's not until you see all of it come together. Well, I mean, it, it's enjoyable if you are enjoying it throughout the whole movie. But I think like, if you're it only makes sense if you see it in its entirety. Yeah, and even if you are enjoying it, it's not like you know what the fuck is going on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like like the way that the story is organized so that you only know a specific amount of information at such mm -hmm. specific and poignant parts of the movie. It's not until you have seen every scene and every aspect of the movie that you actually finally know what the fuck was happening. Yeah, whether I mean, or not you're enjoying that. Or not. So it's like, again, it's like, I get why people stop at the halfway point, but also in, in the greater movie watching, you know, environment, but The Handmaiden, like, you just have to watch all of it. Yeah. And if you don't like it the first time, you have to watch it again and again until you yeah. like it. Like, it, that's really it how is, it is. It is a movie that I genuinely believe that if you keep rewatching it, you will like. I think it would be impossible for someone to... Unless they just give up on the movie completely, mm -hmm. I think it would be impossible to like watch it and not yeah. like watch it and understand it and not appreciate yeah. it because it's just yeah. There's there's so much there to be uh, appreciated. Like you could watch it for the lesbian, of course, but from a movie making, acting, like how to portray. It was also my first time watching a movie period piece about like. Japanese colonization of Korea like that's just a history and a historical dynamic that I'm just not super familiar with in the way that there are other period pieces that I'm more familiar with that time period and that location that I think it was it's a a really good and interesting addition to like the period piece canon I think as well because even though I can't say like oh this was accurate this wasn't they would have looked like this spoken like this or whatever I think it it the way that it portrays the history feels like based in reality of that time period and what was happening and the commentary that the movie makes about it is I think a really really important and really well done as I would assume from someone who is very familiar with that time period and as someone who like this is kind of like my introduction into this world the movie handles that aspect of it like really responsibly and really well done my friend who is from Korea and also like obviously speaks Korean speaks Japanese mm -hmm. and then like knows Korean history and like is a communist when they're watching this yeah. movie I remember asking them like are the subtitles accurate and they were like I'm mm -hmm. not even looking at them I don't know what you're talking I, I couldn't <laughs> tell you this movie mm -hmm. also being one of like their favorites or whatever is and and like also this movie just being so universally beloved by lesbians communists film enjoyers it just like shows yeah. to me like if there was some discontinuity there with like the actual history of a real life place mm -hmm. and like 
experience that did happen in history, I think it would have already been called out, you know? Like, people would have already decided, no, that's not right. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is that with the whole, like, marketing thing and how you're introduced to a movie informing, how you're introduced to The Handmaiden informing your watch experience, I think it's Mm -hmm. so interesting that... I saw a post the other day that was sort of comparing six different posters of The Handmaiden, like all different mm-hmm. movie posters, I think official movie posters for it. And yeah. the one in, I think the, the main US one, or one of them, involves like an illustration of octopus tails, um, tails, tentacles? tentacles, girl, anyway, octopus tentacles, like crawling all over the film poster design Mm -hmm. but the octopus shit doesn't even become relevant until the very end of the movie like i remember looking at that poster watching the movie looking back at the poster and being like where is this even coming oh yeah okay i see you know like that's Mm -hmm. You don't even visually see the octopus thing until you get to the very end, which reinforces how important these tiny details and the holistic nature of the storytelling is to this movie. Like, you really have to see those last scenes. You really have to see the fact that these girls are on the ocean. You really have to think about the nature of, like the fucking Japanese porn that is in like you have to think about and notice all of these things visually and also think about like metaphorically what an octopus tentacle and how that being like twisted into your life and also like the choking that's involved with an octopus tentacle and the and the obvious like like all of that shit it's just like it's so that's even brilliant in itself you know there's another US cover like another one of the covers is one of all of the actors like being posed together looking at you and like they're all mm-hmm. touching in one way or the other and that's also phenomenal. Yeah. Such a great portrayal of all of them and their relationship to each other. And then I think the most popular cover is the one that's like yellow and it looks like yeah. a Japanese style painting and you can see little, if you zoom in very close, you'll see little like little illustrations of different pivotal scenes in mm-hmm. the movie that like, None of that shit means anything until you've seen it and you're like, oh, that's that scene. Oh, like that. So even, yeah. That's kind of the same with the movie poster for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, yeah. Where basically the entire fucking movie is on Mm -hmm. the poster. Mm -hmm. But you, it doesn't spoil anything because you don't Mm -hmm. know what it means until you see the movie. Because I mean... I obviously saw the movie poster before seeing everything everywhere all at once. And I was like, oh, that's like a sick ass poster. Like I liked it, Mm -hmm. you know, I thought it was cool. But it wasn't until I looked at it again after watching it that I'm like, whoa, that's that thing. And that's that thing. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I'm like, and then by the end I was like, that's the entire fucking movie in one movie. Like that's so brilliant. And I think The Handmaiden, obviously everything everywhere all at once just came out this year and The Handmaiden Mm -hmm. came out in 2016. We're kind of seeing that style become more popular i i def in in the past couple of years i think the handmaiden was definitely so ahead of the curve the curve became a sphere on that one because like marvel tries to do that with their like big crossover movie posters or whatever but it, it's cheap it's not smart it's not classy it's not no, intellectual no, no. yeah in the way that these other kind of more like i'd say like maximalist movie posters the handmade in the yellow one is less maximalist because you're kind mm-hmm. of like zooming and more just the detailed details. yeah yeah 
but kind of having like it's not like one photo of like a person's face kind of yeah, movie poster yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really classic or one specific frame kind of like a movie poster that just holds multiple images i think that has become really more popular but is being done now in really cool and interesting ways that is kind of like pushing what movie posters can be and i think that's a really interesting avenue because this is kind of like off topic or whatever but like when i was younger i was like i really wanted to be a movie trailer editor specifically like i didn't want to <laughs> yeah. edit movies i wanted to be the person who makes trailers because i think the way that trailers extrapolate scenes and lines from a movie to portray its plot in such a limited amount of time versus what the context of those lines and scenes end up being when you watch the full movie were really interesting to me and i like really wanted to be in the room of how people are like okay this is the movie that we made these are the people that we want to be interested in it how do we chop this up so that people are interested in the plot but we don't give away too much but we're reaching out to multiple demographics and i think like movie posters is like the graphic design is my passion version <laughs> of that and the way right. that like editors mm -hmm, <laughs> watch mm -hmm. a movie trailer and like watch a movie and are like that's a good trailer that's not a good trailer which is why like a trailer is so important to the setup to before a movie comes out it can really make or break the the public discussion mm -hmm. and the way that mm -hmm. i think movie posters are really having that influence now i think people are taking mm -hmm. movie posters more seriously in a way then it's different than before. I think they were always important, obviously, and there's iconic mm -hmm. movie posters, but I think now it's like much more yeah. of a staple. Yeah. I know this this episode is already so long, but I yeah. am curious about, like, I personally think that I might like, like, I've never seen the trailer for The Handmaiden, and now I'm curious mm -hmm. to see what it looks like because I don't know what it looks like. But like, mm -hmm. I feel like I enjoy movies more when I watch them before ever seeing the trailer instead of mm -hmm. movies that I watch after that I watch the trailer of and thus am anticipating seeing and then I go see it and then I like with few exceptions I feel like I've been not disappointed but like not been wowed or brought in like the having watched the trailer didn't really make the experience better if it affected my experience at all it just made it worse you know like like I went yeah. into the movie men terrible fucking movie it's a new a24 horror i wanted mm -hmm. i went into it mostly because i saw trailers on youtube or whatever and i was like this is this is ass whereas the other a24 horror midsummer i remember mm -hmm. watching the trailer on youtube and being like that's beautiful and then watching every other trailer of it and then seeing it in mm -hmm. theaters and then watching it again and being like yeah, exactly. Served. Slid. It has to do with the nature of the movie, but also particularly with the editing as well. But mm -hmm. anyways, do you want to get into our recommendations now? <laughs> At this point in the episode, I am recommending you a show, but <laughs> I know, but it's only one season out right now, nine episodes long. It is titled Severance, and it is by Apple TV. Oh my god, not Severance. The way yes. so many people have told me to watch this. 
I know, but just like, hear me out. Don't let this be succession coded for you because I need this you to actually like, watch this one. No, so I was I'm, just, I'm I was just going to say, this is like when you recommended succession and I was like, girl, no fucking way. <laughs> okay. But the thing is that that's what, that's also what you said about Fleabag and look at us now. So I think that if I campaign for this. Well, the reason why I ended up watching Fleabag was because everyone was talking about it in a way, uh, in coalescence with media that I do, I have watched or read and enjoyed. Mm-hmm in a way that was so frustrating for me that I was like, okay, well, let me see how y'all, you bitches are misinterpreting Fleabag. And then I did. And I, I, I saw the fucking vision because of the way that everyone was misinterpreting it. So that was, I think, what led me into that, I guess. But anyways, continue with your pitch. <laughs> God. Anyways, so Severance is definitely dark. It kind of has the uh, psychological horror aspect of it that I think is tonally similar to The Handmaiden. You kind of mm-hmm. never know exactly what's going on until the end. But even then you don't really know what's going on because it's a show, so there's going to be another season. And it does not wrap everything up nice and easy. You are stressed. Your heart is racing. You are on the edge of your seat while watching this show in a way that just no other show really taps in for me and in a way that I've also never seen done in a serialized version like this because obviously the thing about The Handmaiden is that you're sitting there watching it for two and a half hours which is long for a movie but this Severance the first season is nine episodes it's nine hours of it and it is so good and well paced and the dissemination of information that you get as a viewer is very particular and interesting, utilized to the benefit of the show for you to hold certain knowledge during certain scenes, a la The Handmaiden. It is American, has Adam Scott. Christopher Walken is in this show for some reason. I mean, None of very these people's grateful. names mean anything to me, but anyways. You don't know Christopher Walken? I thought you, you know. would know. Or I the other person. Adam Scott from Parks and Rec and many other shows, but most popularly Parks and Rec. Well, Patricia Arquette is also in it, but I do do you know, yeah. I'd be surprised if we we didn't know Adam Scott and Christopher Walken, but knew Patricia Arquette. But those are very popular actors and um, indie actors in the show as well. But anyways, it's about this company that honestly kind of reminds me of Apple, which is weird as fuck that it is on the Apple TV streaming service. I don't want to think about that too hard. I mean, I have and I did, but anyways. Where the workers who work there get this procedure where their memories are severed. So when they go to work, they have no memory of their life outside of work. And when they leave, they have no memory of what they do at work. So essentially your lives are split. So when you're out in the world, it feels like you never work besides like driving there every day and when you're at work it is that's your entire world that's the only people that you know and the only relationships that you know and in the outside world we see kind of like clips in the news in the background that there are people in the real world who are very strongly against this procedure and think that it's uh not moral for a company to have people do this but then we also see 
kind of like how Fox News will have like a hashtag lib and like a conservative. You know, we have people who are very pro-severance, think that every job should have this, people who think that it's actually liberating for the workers because if you don't carry the burden of work with you in your life, then you're, you know, free to do whatever. We follow this perspective of the main character where we kind of see both sides because a lot of the people who are severed when they're at work and they don't know what their outside life is like to them work is like the best place on earth they don't know what they don't know essentially and the same thing for the people on the outside except they have to kind of like deal with their emotional like what is it what does it mean to have these two separate lives the visual look of the show is stunning the directing is stunning the framework and the way that the camera moves in this show is absolutely stunning and again just a, a powerhouse in television right now which we're getting a lot of and then i also think that it kind of has the same the the the, the same sparkle or i guess not sparkle but the same thing that makes the Handmaiden, such like a, a driven movie, is in Severance as well. And, and I think that you would like it for, for that reason. Okay, thank you for this pitch. You're welcome. Uh, not taking comments at this time, but no. <laughs> I was just describing this book to friends at dinner, and it was kind of crazy. And the different details I was picking out from it, and then I did a little swerve. Wow, that was a that was a great pitch from High Sunny at a restaurant. <laughs> Being high at a restaurant, I've done that twice in the past like week. There's nothing like it. It's it, 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 mm-hmm. Matt turned to me and was like, "I feel like I'm in a dream right now." Because I think partially because of what I was explaining. But anyways, mm-hmm. the book I want to recommend is Schmutz by mm-hmm. Felicia Berliner, and my recommendation comes from the knowledge that I have. That you are a disobedience girl. We get it. We know. We see I'm it. I'm getting whacked so hard in the comment section. I mean, I'm standing my truth, okay? I will not be shaken. But I'm getting whacked so fucking hard in the comment section. Of our tier ranking video. Everyone's yes. like, yeah, Sunny's right. And I'm like, yeah. Right. Okay, but the thing <laughs> is, I, I have my corner of the internet where I'm right. And that is what keeps me. I'm okay. I'm okay with both of these God. truths being held at the same time. Sometimes, sometimes people people can hold multiple truths, Sunny. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. Anyways, so this mm-hmm. book is a very recently released novel, and I would say it is, I would say it's very queer, but mm-hmm. to understand why, the concept is that there's this Hasidic girl, mm-hmm. uh, so Orthodox Jewish, lives in Brooklyn, and she is like 18 or 19, And she is a porn addict. How is she a porn addict, you may ask? Considering Mm -hmm. that Hasidic Jews have no, like, are by law not allowed to have computers or, like, you know, have access to internet. It's because she is a student at Cohen College and also works, like, as an assistant somewhere. Like, she also has a babysitter. Working a lot to try to make money to help her family, essentially, right? And to help put, like, her... Well, yeah, for her family. And essentially, she has a computer for her college. So she goes to, like, Cohen College or something in, like, Manhattan. And she needs the computer for her classes, particularly, like, her accounting classes. Like, she needs her 
Excel slay. But <laughs> what, like within the first chapter, she sort of explains how she was looking up, just like she, she found out that Google was a thing that she could look up things. And she was like, mm-hmm. wait, okay, well, let me look up some stuff. And she like looks up like kissing and then and she's like oh i can see images of this and then she Mm -hmm. starts googling stuff that then leads her to internet porn and so she has to hide her like addiction and constant watching of internet porn from her whole family like she shares a room with her Mm -hmm. younger sister like she has to do all of this while meanwhile she's getting she's experiencing the matchmaking process of trying to find Mm -hmm. a husband um, she has three, uh, she has three siblings and her mom has miscarried quite a few times and, uh, she's, it's like a very insular community, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you're Hasidic, you only hanging out with, you're only around your family who are also Hasidic and then your community who are also Hasidic, like very rooted in tradition and a closed practice of not really interacting with technology or the secular mm-hmm. world in a real way. Like her first language is Yiddish and she is very self-conscious about mm-hmm. the uh, her accent when she's in classes and stuff. But a couple different things happen. Like this is another type of story that is up your alley in that it's like not much is happening, but a lot mm-hmm. is happening. Like mm-hmm. technically we're just seeing this girl do her day-to-day shit while she spirals deeper and deeper into a porn addiction. But, Mm -hmm. like, on an emotional and relationship level, it's, like, a lot of stuff is going on. And Mm -hmm. some of the stuff includes, like... So, at her college, she befriends this, like, group of goths. And and that's really funny to see. Mm -hmm. She also is going to therapy, like once a week with this like reformed Jewish woman who uh, her mom like sent her to because she expressed her fears about marriage and not wanting to be she's like I don't know like how I feel about like these dates and like these uh, how I want to get married and whatever and so she's like expressing this to the psychiatrist to the psychologist and the psychologist is just like so how does that make you feel like what do you think like and like eventually she reveals Eventually, she reveals that she has a porn addiction to the psychologist, mm. and they have to, like, work through that shit as well. So there's that t- there's that timeline thing. And then, of course, there's, like, her whole relationship with, like, her dad, who experienced a, like, workplace injury uh, a few years ago, and that totally changed his whole, like, mood. And now he's, like, very, like, angry a lot. And then her mom, mm. who is very, like, enthusiastic and involved, and her brother who's a stoner <laughs> again despite being Hasidic Real. and her and her brother I think his name is Moisha he, he she he's the one that she likes the most and then she's a younger mm-hmm. sister who she shares the room with and then she has an older brother who has moved out and is married already like so it, there's all these like different family dynamics but it was it was very like interesting I guess, like, anthropologically to, like, be in the mind and Mm -hmm. first in, like, perspective and experience the week-to-week, day-to-day, hour-by-hour life and thoughts of this girl who all she knows is 
Orthodox Judaism. That's all she mm-hmm. knows. Until it's not. Until she gets introduced to this laptop and the fucking world of the internet and the world of internet mm-hmm. porn. But we just see how this porn addiction just continuously affects how she views like the these like parent monitored dates she's going on for her future husband. Like her schooling. Like she's always been a top student, but that starts going down as this progresses. And then she also has this weird relationship to the widowed boss, who's a woman of like this conglomerate of like jewelers, essentially. Cause like in this Brooklyn community, like all of the Hasidic Jews who have money or like are, are usually like landlords or have are within a legacy of like, jewelry making and and this is like a mm-hmm. thing across all of brooklyn essentially like for the but but for our main character and for her family and for a lot of the families in her community like are very much like penny pinching like just just working class trying to survive right and um so we see all of that but also like in the in this community like all the boys go to religious school and extend that most girls stop going to school but in in like high school years or like rarely like she is the only person much less woman who is going to college like secular college Mm -hmm. not like religious school essentially like she's a standout in many regards for in that way but it was just very it was a very interesting book because like we're in this mind of this like 18 19 year old girl who is dealing with her schmutz addiction uh, addiction Mm -hmm. she makes like i enjoy the audiobook for this as well because the narrator obviously like speaks yiddish so like the Mm -hmm. pronunciations of all the different names and words and terminology it wasn't something i had to trip up with when i was if i was reading with like my eyes i guess Mm -hmm. um and the accents were very on point, I would say. Like, the, <laughs> the vocalizations of the different characters was, was a, like, a good touch. She also, of course, confronts her relationship with faith and with, like, the, with God, like, and the traditions that she was raised with versus her experiences now. Like, there's this one really, like, there's so many different, like, lines or scenes that have stuck with me a lot ever since finishing this like literally the other day and one of them was like she was like you know as women we don't have to be in a gathering of like 10 men in order to pray we only Mm -hmm. we can pray by ourselves whereas for the men it's like you need to have like whatever number of group of people in order to pray and communicate with god and one of the like one of the like like daily prayers for men um, is like I thank you God for making me not a woman. Essentially, mm-hmm. is like one of the prayers that are made. like because also this book is very this book is very like feminist inherently I guess, and it's also mm-hmm. a look at the way that gender operates within this Orthodox community and this family from the perspective of a young woman who is like very torn in a lot of directions. Like she's like. She's the weird one in her family and in her community of Hasidic Jews, but she's also the weird one at her secular school. That's not even secular. Like, it's 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 a Jewish school, but, like, all types of students go there, and most of the Jews mm-hmm. there are, 
reform or if they're not, most of the Jews are Orthodox and not Hasidic. She's like the only Hasidic girl there. Um, mm-hmm. So basically like she she feels really not right in a lot of different like places and not because of any thing that like she she does necessarily it's like sort of the inevitable consequences of being so sheltered and then like not like but anyway the scene that I was thinking about was like she was thinking she was trying to think about all of the prayers that she she has access to and that she's like flipping through or, or thinking through and she's like you know I don't think there's that many prayers about asking God to get you off of your porn addiction. So I'm just going to make one up, essentially. And instead of saying, I thank you, God, for making me not a woman, I thank you, God, for making me a woman. Because I get to talk to you on my own instead of Mm -hmm. having to do this communally when I'm already experiencing such an isolated and individual, like, conflict here. She doesn't tell anyone except for her, like, therapist what she's going through but she's interacting with so many people every day so anyway I really really and I really enjoyed schmutz and I don't I was like fluctuating between like four stars five stars like I don't know I think right now it's like four but I did really enjoy it and I think you would Mm -hmm. like it too so that's my recommendation for this episode slay it sounds good and interesting I hope you guys enjoyed this I hope you guys enjoyed the Taylor Summerland handmaiden. I know a lot of you are gonna be cheering about the handmaiden <laughs> conversation finally happening. So you're fucking welcome uh, about that. Right, 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 right. And right. you know, follow us on Instagram and the Twitter and the letterbox and all of that. And yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For listening. For this three plus hour long raw recording shit. Oh, yeah. join us on Patreon if you want to see bonus content that isn't this fucking long, but also about yes. things you might fucking care about, you know? Anyway. For sure. Thanks so much. And bye. Bye.